You're listening to Video Monsters, a weekly podcast. Uh, well, uh, mostly weekly. Sometimes more, sometimes less. <sighs> All right, fine. A mostly weekly podcast of Creatures Talking Features with your hosts, Nathan Simmons and Eric Harris. Video Monsters is brought to you by the Chattanooga Film Festival and Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at chatfilmfest.org and centralcinema865.com. And links for each of these can also be found on our pages, so be sure to follow us at Video Monster Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Hello and welcome to Video Monsters, where we take movies seriously, but not ourselves. I'm Nathan. And I'm Eric. And we are continuing on with our apparently cursed decades episodes because uh, (laughs) every single time that we have tried to record one of our decades episodes, something has gone wrong. And that's continued this time for what, like three or four days in a row, I think? Yeah, every single night we've tried to record, something has happened. Like last night, I literally was like, all right, let's do this. I'm ready to record. And you're like, sweet, let's do it. And as soon as you sent me a text response, (laughs) power shut out in my entire neighborhood. Like all the power just went out. And it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh my God. It has been insane. But, you know, um, it feels oddly appropriate that. that with our decades episodes uh, that are happening in 2020, that they all end up just being cursed because because 2020 is cursed. Cursed, yeah. Like, let's. I mean, <laughs> we're not starting this decade off on a on a very good foot. So uh, you know, it just it feels like, in some ways, it feels totally apropos. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and there's certainly like no similarities whatsoever between 2020 and the 1960s so nope yeah no just, it's a totally different time period uh definitely definitely nothing political or socially whatever <laughs> this is a great start this, uh, this is a great start <laughs> um yeah man actually it's very it's been this past month watching a lot of 60s movies has been absolutely fascinating i've got to say just to see some of these movies and see so many similarities to things that are are going on today it's like you know you always hear people talk about the fact that we try to study history to learn from it um but for some reason it seems like we still end up just repeating the same mistakes over and over again like it's yeah and like here's here's the thing about the 60s with that um because, like, yes, there is definitely a very cyclical nature to, to history and, um, you know, different civilizations rise and then they fall. And like there absolutely is this sort of ongoing loop. And and I get that. And, yeah, you can learn from it, but there's only so much that you can do, like when an entire civilization is falling. And and so, you know, there's there is truth to the uh, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But. You know, it's also just kind of like, yeah, that's that's life. But the 60s aren't that long ago. Like, the, yeah, it's really not like and, like I, I know that there were people from the 40s and 50s who were still alive today. They're old, but like they feel like from a different time, you know, like someone who was born in the 40s 
or someone who uh, was born earlier than the 40s and alive during then, like it feels like just a different time. It feels like so long ago. But someone yeah. who was, you know, a, a teenager growing up during the 60s, they are still alive. And, and it doesn't like, sure, they're your crazy old uncle now, but like they don't, I don't know. It's so weird that it hasn't been that long ago. And and it doesn't feel like a completely different generation. And yet here we are repeating all of the same mistakes. And yeah, it's it is. It's very, but it also is. It does also kind of serve as a reminder as to why the fact that it is so recent does in some ways make me feel a little bit better about our current issues because it does feel like I don't know, like I read this thing recently that was talking about how Ruby Bridges, you know, the first black girl to be integrated into um, a public school, she's like 68 years old. Yeah. Um, and it's like you read something like that and it just really puts it into perspective that this was really not that long ago. And all of these people who were adamantly against desegregating schools and who were adamantly like speaking out against people like Martin Luther King. And uh, now they're just posting on Facebook about it. Yeah. now they're talking about how we need to be more like Martin Luther King, despite the fact that they probably uh, despised him in the 1960s or people who are saying that today probably would have despised him if they were alive in the sixties. I I included a a (laughs) King quote on a recent post that I did on Facebook and I am surprised like a, a little dumbfounded actually that I've not gotten like more hate responses from people yeah. be, because it's basically talking out against the white church. And I'm, mm. I'm actually very surprised <laughs> that I've not gotten a lot more responses. Uh, not that I want them, yeah. but just the nature of it was, um, it, it, so, so yeah, there, there's no way that we're going to get through to white people. Yes. There's no way that we're going to get through a, uh, an entire episode devoted to the decade of the sixties and cinema in the sixties, oh. obviously without talking about civil rights and uh that continues to be an issue today and and like i'm trying to gather all of my thoughts because i am trying to keep this a cinema related podcast and not turn it into a political science podcast because again we are not politicians and we yeah we would only have so much to say uh in in that field but one of the things uh, about the 60s not being that long ago, and like I, I think that one of the issues with why there is still as rampant of uh, racism as we have today, too many people that lived through the 60s feel like we fixed racism then. You know, like yeah. I, I can't even count how many times I've been in conversations and that's putting it a lot more civilly than what it actually was. Uh, but talking with people and and trying to talk about how Black Lives Matter is important and about how like there are still a, a lot of systemic issues and how there are still racial problems in America. And like, there's so many responses of, oh, don't tell me that I lived through the sixties. Racism isn't a thing now. It's like, yep, no, yeah, mm, no, it is. Or they'll, they'll talk about it in relation to slavery or something. It's like, oh, so it was 200 years ago. Yeah. And, and so like, I think that that 
I think that that's part of why we are where we are today is the people who lived through the 60s who were not part of like the actual civil rights movement and who, you know, didn't like hate black people, but they certainly weren't the ones, uh, you know, on, on the front lines trying to uh, fight for equal rights. I think that so many of those people are just trying to assuage their own white guilt of just being like, Oh no, no, no. Racism isn't a thing. Now we don't have to deal with it because they fixed it back in the sixties. We're, we're good now. We, We don't have to deal with racism now. And I think it's because they are still alive and like the, the people who live during the sixties are still around. Yeah. And so to them, maybe it feels like a different time or it feels like, Oh no, mm-hmm. surely we aren't still living in the era of whatever. And, and I think yeah. that when something is more removed, unfortunately only within certain limits, because Plenty of people where we live are still saying it's part of part of our heritage. No, no, it's not. But. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. No, it's, we, I feel like yeah. if, just in case there's anybody out there listening to this who doesn't know, I feel like it's important to mention that we live in Tennessee. Yeah, uh, we, we do. So uh, it's it's wild to me because like I go on Facebook and you see all these things that talks about how like you know Trump is losing support and people are disapproving of his handling of race relations and of the coronavirus and all this stuff. But yeah, I still see 99% of the people that I know and many of whom I care about flying Trump flags and wearing Trump hats. And it doesn't feel like there's been that much of a sea change where we live. Now, things may be different in other places, but we still, I mean, we're right here in the buckle of the Bible Belt. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still not feeling very hopeful about the election. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It just, yeah, we live in the South. It sucks. It's, yeah. there, there are a lot of racist people here. Yeah. And like, okay. So we mentioned so this on colors are expect our, um, our experiences with, with this kind of thing and why we probably seem a little more destitute about it. Yeah. About and like, it, I, I mentioned this others. on, uh, on an episode, I, I forget when, but a few episodes back in terms of, I, I promise you, we are going to get to movies. <laughs> we really are. In terms of like systemic racism is a thing. And like, it just about has to be a thing because if the system isn't racist, then people that I love are. And yeah. I, but some people that I know absolutely are racist. Like there, there is no question that I know some just racist ass people and they I I do not love them you know other than like the I don't wish them ill will but yeah so there definitely are people who are just blatantly racist then there are other people that I they're not bad people they just don't see or just don't they, they refuse to acknowledge that the system that continues to benefit them is a wildly racist system and mm. well, and, and it's, it's, ah, it's so um, frustrating because it's like guys come on like if anything this is their out you know it's like you can just well, say also, oh it's uh, the system and then work to fight the yeah. system like we can all fight the system together rather yeah, than i think it's hard mm, to do that yeah. though when um when you have 
your parents watching things like Fox News. And I know that Fox News is kind of like the easy thing to dogpile on. But let me but listen, I watched like about five minutes of Fox News the other day because it was on at my wife's uncle's cabin. And holy shit, do you ever watch Fox News? <laughs> I can't get it through is, more than about three minutes without getting like physically angry. So not like, often. It's like if if you are an older person and all you want, if that that's the only place where you really get your news, then I like I kind of understand to a certain extent why these people feel the way that they do. Like, have yeah, you seen it's, that? It's fear mongering and dog whistles is what it it's is. Absolutely. It's absolutely what it is. Have you seen that thing where it showed the, the like the white couple who had, were out with their uh, AR 15s or whatever. <laughs> yes. And it was like, Fox news has turned our parents into, uh, into the people that uh hip hop said that we would, would turn us into or whatever. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, that uh, worked, Fox news has turned our parents into what they said, uh, like gangster rap was going to do to us. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh. And, there's a lot of truth to it. So, so all of this does relate to movies, <clears throat> not only because of the fact that, uh, you know, obviously during the 60s, there was the civil rights movement and uh, currently there's Black Lives Matter, but also because during the 60s, uh, at least in cinema and in, you know, culture, there was so much counterculture and so much just like things need to change we cannot keep doing things the same way that uh that they've been going and and you see that in cinema and you know that's part of what i've really enjoyed about these decades episodes that we've been doing is kind of not just watching a singular movie that i haven't seen before but like really condensing down some of what was going on during that decade and and sort of getting this bigger picture um but like especially and here we can start getting into like movie specific stuff but especially yeah. building off of the 50s episode where we were talking about you know the atomic age and about how that was post world war 2 and how there was um all of this concern of all right yeah now we have the atom bomb and what are we going to do next are you going to destroy the world and so i think that a lot of the fears that kids and teenagers growing up in the 50s had of our parents kind of fucked us over and like created this nuclear weapon that is going to destroy everything. What do we do? I, I think that that then led into more of that counterculture of the sixties. It led more into, uh, at, at least in the movies that I watched, not necessarily having a clear, like black and white good guy versus bad guy. There's definitely main characters, but yeah, not always identifiable protagonists and you know like you've got woodstock and you've got free love and like there's all of this stuff happening during the 60s and there was we were talking about this a little bit before we actually started recording the 60s feels like a decade that um has some of the biggest shifts in society from the start to the end of the decade and and you oh, see yeah. a lot of that in cinema and um and, and yeah, is, let's let's start diving into that because we gotta, yeah, it is fascinating. It's without a doubt the most transitional period in like the most transitional decade, I would say, in film history. Like you look at movies from the beginning of the 1960s and compare them to the movies that were being made at the end of the decade, and it is like night and day. In some cases, quite literally, because that was when we uh, when we really stopped making 
black and white movies. I mean, like obviously there were Technicolor and things early on in the sixties. Um, or well, I mean, obviously well before that, but, um, you get to a point by the end of the decade where, you know, cameras are a lot cheaper to make. They're more compact. It's easier to film in color. And, uh, and so you don't really start, you really get almost no black and white movies by the end of the decade. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Like black and white starts turning into an artistic choice rather than a well that's that's just the way that movies are made you know it started out where doing things in color was like the artistic oh you're like you're doing something new and crazy you're putting color in your film (laughs) and and then it turned into no i'm intentionally keeping this black and white and sometimes it was probably just a pragmatic I, i don't know if uh if like black and white film stock was cheaper than technicolor I, I don't know. I, I, well, I know of a then. good a good example is uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance is one of the movies that we watched and it's in black and white. And um, from what I read, the reason why they did that in that case, because at this point, John Ford had already done Technicolor Westerns. He'd made the searchers um, and a few others in the fifties. Uh, but man who shot Liberty Valance, they shot in black and white because um they didn't think they thought that the color filming it in color would make it more obvious that John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart were too old to play their <laughs> younger selves in the movie. Cause you get them at, and, and you get them kind of recounting their past and they, where they play younger men. It was like, Oh yeah, we need to film this in black and white to make it less obvious that these are just old dudes playing 20, 30 year old men. It definitely uh, which is hides pretty the interesting. Um, and then you have things. Uh huh. Uh, a Hard Day's Night, I think, is maybe the only other. Well, no, there are a few other ones, but A Hard Day's Night is also one that kind of is shot like handheld uh, documentary style, even though it's a fictional film. It was kind of fascinating. It's like a mixture of fiction and documentary in a way, and which was kind of common fiction, among a few other sixties that I watched. Is that is that a word? <laughs> it was like a fictional film trying to show you a day in the life of the Beatles based on things that actually happened to them, but just heightened for, you know, filmic purposes yeah, for dramatic I was, effect. Uh, I, I was trying to quickly scroll through all of the sixties movies that I watched and uh, I can't count and think at the same time, but I would probably say that I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe somewhere between a third to a half of the movies that I saw that feels like too many, probably closer to a third of the movies that, uh, that I watched, I think we're black and white. Um, and, and again, without going back through and actually counting all of them, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, for the 60s, I watched way more than, than Eric did. Again, because yeah, I don't know you've why. watched four times as many movies as I did. <laughs> Literally four times as many movies that I watched as yeah. I did. I watched 10. <clears throat> I watched 10 new ones. Well, let me, let me phrase that. I watched nine new ones and then I rewatched one movie. Um, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I have literally not even seen as many 60 movies total as you watched <laughs> over the course, of that, which is kind of insane. Um, I, I did watch 41 um, movies from the sixties and there were one, two, three, four, five, Six ish, seven, eight, um, nine, ten ish, 
Yeah. So there, there was only a total of like 11 or 12 of those that I had seen before. Um, yeah. So, so I got in about 30 new movies, which I've seen 37. And nine of those were new this past month. So I think that, I, I mean, I don't even know how many I've seen total from the sixties. I might pull that up next time that, uh, that you're talking, but the sixties have always been a, uh, a very important, I don't want to say a very important time for me because that sounds like I was alive during the sixties. That's not how I mean to say it. The culture from the sixties has, uh, been a very influential part of my life for the majority of my life because my dad is very old and so like he was <laughs> like he was in college during the 60s and so yeah. you know like all of his vinyls he still has and so like growing up i was listening to beatles on original vinyls that he had from when he was in college and That's like awesome. the movies that he watched obviously were the movies that then if they're uh, showing up on like Turner classic movies or something, he's like, Oh yeah, that movie. And like he'll watch it because it, you know, it's one of the movies that he remembers from when he was younger. So stuff like watching James Bond and pink Panther and um, you know, some Westerns, I didn't watch nearly as many of those uh, growing up as I probably should have, but like there was a lot of stuff from the sixties that had an impact on me growing up. And, yeah. and so I feel like I probably have seen way more from the sixties because I, that might've been like some of my first introductions to film, just watching the stuff uh, with my dad. Cause you know, as a parent now, um, I don't want to watch a new movie with my kid until I've had a chance to see it just cause I don't know what's going to be in it. Right, he's yeah. only two. I don't know what he's going to be able to and what he can't like even old Disney yeah. movies some of them i'm like oh yeah you can totally handle that others i'm like i don't i don't know and like as much as i love horror movies i don't want him to be freaked out and i don't want him like waking up with nightmares and like there's always that hesitancy of i don't want him to watch something that's going to traumatize him because he's still you know he's um getting a lot more verbal and putting together like sentences but that whole like uh reasoning isn't there yet and yeah. so if he wakes up in the middle of the night, he's not going to be able to say, dad, I'm scared because this movie that we watched earlier had this big, scary monster. And I thought that I saw mm -hmm. this big, scary monster in my room. Like he can't do that. He would just go like, <laughs> and, and so it's just like, I, mm, <laughs> I want him to be older and be able to actually explain these anyways. Um, yeah, it, it's very late. So expect a lot of these tangents. <laughs> So yeah, the sixties, I feel like had a big impact on me growing up and it's weird because the films that we uh, covered in our earlier decades episodes, most of those movies are movies that I've seen within the last 10 years. If I've seen them before, yeah. I've either yeah. never seen them or is something that I've seen like in the last 10 years, trying to fill in those gaps in my cinema knowledge. But starting in the 60s, it's like, oh, yeah, I've seen that. I, I've seen these, you know, like, again, I grew up watching James Bond movies. And so, like, the 60s is starting to hit that point of I, familiarity, I guess. I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going with all this. I don't even remember why I started all of that. Other than to say yeah, I've seen a lot of movies from the 60s. I think for me, that's going to be the 70s because I've been kind of looking over my list of 70s movies and 
going when I started to put together a list of sixties movies that I wanted to watch, it was almost it was actually very overwhelming. Like there are so many sixties movies that I'm like, I need to see this, I need to see this. To the point where like I was panicked like I spent so much time trying to decide on what movie to watch next that I probably could have watched an additional five or ten more movies if I had just picked a damn movie and started watching it. Because <laughs> I was trying to get yep. the variety of all these different like eras and styles and or not eras, but like um like regions, I guess. Like I wanted to get some foreign films in there. I wanted to get a nice mix of like comedy and some musicals and some drama and Western. And um, so I spent all this time like trying to curate my list, but then going into the seventies, I've seen so many seventies movies before that I was like, Oh, it's easy. I can just pick out these few here and there that I like absolutely have to see and then throw in, sprinkle in a few more if I have time. Um, The sixties was not that at all. It was overwhelming because they're just, (laughs) seems to be like an explosion of movies during this time. And they are so, they just all feel so radically different from one another. Like the, again, we mentioned like the whole decade feels like it's calling together movies from all different decades from the entire history of cinema in some way. Yep. Uh, and uh, just quick side note, 80 movies is how many sixties movies I've seen before. Oh, damn. Wow. Yeah. It's not enough. Cause I've got another, I don't know, probably 100 sitting over there anyways not important um yeah with all of those different styles and with all of those different uh, like feeling like all these other genres and decades sort of coming together with the 60s honestly um after we did our 50s episode i was a little concerned that i wasn't going to be able to think of enough like cohesive themes to drive the 60s one because the 50s it was so yeah. clear like every single thing that I watched felt like it was either a giant monster or a red scare. Like it it was so easy to pinpoint the themes from the fifties in the sixties. I was like, all right, so we got easy rider over here, which is like so iconically sixties. And one of the best examples of what the sixties is, we'll get back to that in a second. Um, But like, I, I don't know what it's the also the birth of the uh, American New Wave. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's with, definitely uh, something. Rider, Bonnie and Clyde. But let's just like, what's the theme in Easy Rider that's going to tie in with uh, Fistful of Dollars? That's going to tie in with Doctor No? That's going to tie in with Charade? And it's just like, I don't ah, there's too many different <laughs> things happening. And and then in you know watching even more of them, it's like oh right, it's that counterculture. Like it, it's being presented in different ways, but it's almost like um, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, but it's almost like the '60s, the decade itself was rebelling, you know, and like every uh, kid or teenager yeah, when they start rebelling, they rebel in different ways. Some of them start doing drugs. Others start uh, dating people that their parents don't approve of. Others start, I, I don't know, like getting really good at music. Heavy metal. Yeah. And <laughs> and so like in the same way watching that horror movies, <laughs> watching way too many horror movies. So in the same way that people rebel in different ways, it, it's almost like the 60s was just rebelling you know it's like the the 50s literally almost destroyed the world and and things got to change i think that in the 62 it's interesting because you have a lot more freedom 
the directors, I feel like overall had a lot more freedom because you know, we talked a little bit about it in the fifties, but the because of the antitrust laws, you know, studios no longer controlled distribution. Um, they, they didn't own the theaters. Um, those were all operated independently from the studio system. So you ended up getting more choice. You know, there's the free market at work for you there. You end up getting a lot more foreign films brought into the United States. Um, the Hayes Code ended up going away completely because they realized they had no real power over over the movies anymore. They wanted to just uh, they created you know the MPAA. Uh, now the MPA, um, but you know that was when the MPA was created. Is it and just MPA now? Get the rating system that MPA. we all know and love or loathe, depending <laughs> on who you are today. Is there anyone that loves that system? I'm pretty no, sure it's a universal motion picture association to give it uh, to give it a more international. That makes sense. Well, I think it's just wild. Yeah, because well, and also apparently in foreign film markets, it's always been the MPA. I was learning about, but but now they're just overall, it's it's all just MPA now instead of MPAA in the United States. Um, God, I but yeah, so like you have you have less the studios have less control and, you know, I mentioned too that cameras become cheaper. So you actually get a lot more independent kind of cinema. You get the, uh, the French new wave where you get like a band of French film critics who wrote in the Cahier du cinema magazine. And they start like lamenting the state of film and deciding to make their own movies, um, that kind of like buck the status quo and, but are also like, oddly very reverential and, and also self-referential, which I think is kind of interesting. Like you get a lot more movies that are actually about movies um, that are kind of examining the impact that movies have had on our, on our culture and something like a, uh, like breathless is one of the movies I watch, which is kind of like the start of the French new wave. It's a movie by Jean-Luc Godard um, written by Francois Truffaut. Uh, but basically like it's a movie that is about this guy who fancies himself to be Humphrey Bogart um, like there's a scene in the movie where he sees a poster of Humphrey Bogart and he's like looking into the poster and he's like pursing his lips out and trying to look like, like <laughs> bogey. Um, and I feel like, like, I don't really feel like there were any movies before that, that called attention to the fact that, I mean, it's kind of like how, you know, when you watch a zombie movie and nobody ever calls them zombies. Um, I feel like movies, pre-1960 never really called attention to the fact that there were other movies or never explicitly mentioned other actors and things to a certain extent. Um, so yeah, I'm going off on a tangent again, but, uh, sure, but sure. there's just like all these different things that really created an entire change where, you know, we also get like the auteur theory where directors are starting to be recognized for their artistic merits and they're starting to be seen as the, authors of their work like you know people like hitchcock and uh james ford and uh nicholas ray are starting to be getting they're starting to get attention for having very distinct themes and style that kind of shines through the uh collaborative nature of the medium and um i don't know there's just it's just kind of fascinating when you look at it as a whole to see like all of these things just kind of came together at once and created this real just incredible explosion of just wildly different types of films and 
a lot more transgressive films. You start getting like nudity in films and <laughs> there definitely was and, a lot more, uh, I, I guess sexual awakening or just breaking down of some of those barriers or I, I, like even with pink Panther. And again, like I watched that movie as a kid. I don't even remember the first time that I saw it and rewatching it. It's just like, Oh, this is like a sexy movie. Um, it's not like it's uh, explicit and it's not like uh, there's graphic no. nudity or anything, but there's a lot of just, just sexiness, you know, like, um, like everyone's yeah. cheating on each other and there's a, okay. So some things do not age well. Like there is a very prolonged scene where this just really sleazy guy is getting like this duchess, I think, uh, drunk to take advantage of her because she's mm. like the uh, like the virgin prince or princess, I think. So you know, like she had never been with anyone, and then this old dude is trying to get her drunk, and it's just like, oh, that, hmm, like. <sighs> I, I see where some of the comedy is that they're still playing with and there's still parts that are chuckleable, but like the scene overall is just, yes, <laughs> able to be chuckled at, but the scene overall is just like this. It, oh, this is uncomfortable. Um, yeah. But, but again, like, I don't think that it was necessarily trying to, there are some things that happen in older movies that do not age well and that mm. watching them today or if they were to be made today, it would almost have to be like explicitly sinister uh, in terms of, oh, this guy is just like straight up evil and like that's the point or it you know probably shouldn't be in the movie. But some of the stuff from like the especially around the 60s, there's a lot of things that happen where it's just like I it's not good and I'm not saying that it's okay period new sentence understanding the cultural context in which those movies were made does explain things in a different way than they are explained now or in a different way yeah. than some of the movies from the eighties are. And it's just, sure. yeah, there, there was a lot of stuff or even oh God, even with West side story, like I, I love that movie. It is still an amazing movie. It still has wonderful musical numbers, a, amazing cinematography. It is a, just a great, great movie. It's with a lot of really amazing with a lot it's of really so problematic good. scenes so <laughs> i know i mean you got like all the all the um all the white people playing latino characters for one thing there's, uh, there's a lot of brown face going on uh but also like some of the things that are said at times some of the dialogue is like a very intentional people who say and think these things are not good and they're not right and and there mm -hmm. is sort of that underlying message of why why does there have to be fighting why can't you just accept people and get along and and so there is that underlying positive message uh and, and so some of the lines that are said like it's it's very clear that it's driving home the point that people who are saying bad things are bad people but then there's other things that are said by like the alleged heroes or at least the people that you're rooting for and it's just like that's mm -hmm that's racist and um <laughs> well I, I mean it is a movie that despite it's uh despite the fact that it i mean looking at it today it does seem culturally insensitive i do feel like it's a movie that is genuinely 
trying to point out some elements of systemic racism. Like the, I mean, the song America is just, I mean, the whole thing is about like, Oh yeah, we live in America where we have all these opportunities. And they're like, yeah, when you're all white in America, I mean, that's literally fine. And then in the song, like the fact that they're trying to point out, it's like, yeah, you're in America where you have all these opportunities, but when you're Puerto Rican in America, it is so much harder for you to, to get by. I mean, to, to make ends meet um, because of, because you were an immigrant, you were seen as less than by the, uh, by the other immigrants who just happened to get there a little bit sooner than you did, essentially your ancestors got there quick, more quickly. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, the cops definitely treat the white gang a lot better than the Puerto Rican gang. Oh yeah. And they really do. like, I, I definitely agree that the movie overall is trying to drive home that point and trying to point out some of that systemic racism and trying to, um, you know, trying to say that, look, even if there's people that you don't understand or that you don't agree with, like people are still people, but some of the stuff, like some of the things that the jets do, it just takes so long into the movie before you're like, Oh, right. These are all terrible people. And I, I, like, I don't know if I would say that they're terrible people. I think that the, they are the scene where teenagers who have been led astray. They're t- I mean, like, let's OK, they're not not they're terrible people doing terrible things. They literally try to rape Rita, Rita Marino at one point in the film. And it is a horrifying scene. Yeah. But I do. I mean, I think the movie is obviously saying, like, what they're doing is wrong we should hold them to they we should hold them accountable but at the same time you get like the other my other favorite number besides america the g officer krupke thing God, I love officer krupke where it's literally just talking about like oh yeah we're a bunch of kids and we're a bunch of rabble rousers who don't know what we're doing so we're going to send them to the psychiatrist and then the psychiatrist is going to send them to the no, well, first, it, they they get arrested. They go to the judge. The judge sends yeah. them to a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist sends them to a social worker. Social worker sends them back to the judge. And exactly, so, yeah. yeah, like it just is. Aside from the fact that it's just a catchy song, uh, like it is highlighting that <laughs> some, not just some, it it is highlighting the fact that that environmental issues do have an impact on who people are. And yeah. like environment doesn't explain away everything, you know, like you still do have to make your decisions. You are still responsible for the actions that you take, but sometimes the decisions that you make, you feel like that's the only choice because of the environment in which you live. And, and so, yeah, like with officer Krupke with the, I'm depraved on account of I'm deprived. Like, yeah, I, I remember again, I remember that song from uh, when I was a kid and it's always stuck out to me. Uh, and hell, maybe that's part of why I went into psychology uh, in, in grad school. But it's just like that. That one line is so descriptive of the fact that when people do not have the necessary resources to uh, to well, to survive and, and to, you know, reach their fullest potential that it does start having a significant impact and you do start getting into that loop. And, you know, like maybe um, with the, with the example in the song of he's arrested. And so he goes to the judge and then psychiatrist and then social worker, like mm. 
if they had started out with the social worker, if they had started out with a, you need these resources, you need someone to help you find a job, you need someone to help like just do these productive things in society that could have potentially had an, uh, a, a strong enough impact to keep him out of the point of getting in trouble with police. And, right. you know, again, nothing comparing to uh, <laughs> what we are currently experiencing today. Oh, wait, no, it's exactly what's going on today. Like, that's part of the whole, like, defund the police. It is not like some people think the shutting down the police system and having the uh, lawless West. Side note, the Wild West, quote unquote, Wild West wasn't lawless. Like you could yeah. not carry your gun in town in the old West. The, yeah. the shootout at the OK Corral, like, you know, oh, this this wild. This is an example of the old West was because they had their guns and they weren't supposed to. And it was like three dudes. And it's it's, it's fascinating how much oh, our uh, how much movies have shaped our understanding of what we think that you know, late 1800s were actually like, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's cause it's wildly different from what we've, it, God, it from really what is. it was actually like. So, uh, so yes, defund the police is not talking about like get rid of police systems. It means like stop buying them tanks and maybe, well, and you know, like, like spend that money on social workers to help people get the things that they need to potentially keep them out of trouble like play officer Krupke in reverse and start with uh the social worker failed him and then the psychiatrist failed him and then the legal system legal system failed him like yeah that is more representative of what's going on and like that that's the whole thing is just redirect some of this money to places that will actually help people it's a, the whole point is it's a proactive approach so that way you can hopefully stop these kids from getting into situations where they feel desperate enough to act out in such a way and keep themselves out of trouble in the first place. And also the, it's crazy too to see so many people, and I guess it's just the terminology, but so many people who think we're trying to get rid of police. And it's like, no, the point is to help police officers because right now they serve as social workers and um, child services workers and, I mean, and security. And it's like, no, we're going to take the money that we put into police to make their jobs easier yep. to prevent crime from happening in the first place, to prevent them from having to serve so many different roles in society that they were never meant to serve in the first place. Well, and like so many people like the, their first go-to is like, Oh, what? So who are you going to call? Like if someone's breaking into your house, it's like, well, obviously if your house is being broken into, that is an issue for the police. But even in that example, like most robberies, most crimes take place between people who know each other, maybe not necessarily yeah. well, but like, and I don't know the actual numbers on that. So like, don't take that as a, like a definitive, like this is, but just like in general, you know, like someone who starts out stealing, they aren't going to start by robbing a store. They probably just, you know, take 10 bucks out of their parents purse. Like, it starts with those little things and a lot of people who are on drugs. Yes. Some of them do break into strangers houses, but typically it's like the people that they know that I, it's just also nine times out of 10, these people who, if they're breaking into your house, they're not going to do it while you're home. Right. <laughs> like that's something that I have to explain to my kids all the time. Cause they like get scared of the dark and stuff. They're like, where's the, my trust to break in? It's like, buddy, 
nobody's going to break into our house in the middle of the night. We are here. Like the person breaking into your house is probably just as afraid of, of like you shooting them. If they're breaking into your house as you are of them coming in to hurt you. Like nobody's yeah. just going to come in and really hurt you with that. Odds and, of that happening are right. astronomically low. It does happen, but it's not as common. It, again, like it, it's like with murders. A lot of murders are crimes of passion. It, it it's it's like they're not premeditated yeah exactly and so yes as this relates back to the movies from the 60s <clears throat> because wild, I, wild, I'm, wild, wild west Holy we shit. should west have given story. yeah we should have given probably a much bigger Involved disclaimer that revenge. there's going to be a lot of um a lot of discussion on current events in this episode uh yes west side story i think we gave that disclaimer by talking (laughs) by by just being us west side story is an amazing movie and and again like uh i I know that i mentioned this earlier in terms of with that counterculture and not really having even when you have a main character you don't always necessarily have a protagonist the closest thing that you have to a protagonist in West Side Story is an ex-gang member who murders a dude. Yeah. And it's just like, that. that's the good guy? <laughs> what? Yeah. And uh, yeah, like, that's the good guy, in part because you're told he's the good guy. Um, but, but yeah, so well, he's even the, he's the uh, he's the gang member who tried to go straight. He tried to get a real job. He tried to stop the fighting from happening, but he ended up in doing so. I mean, that's the this is the tragedy of the story is in doing that he ends up accidentally murdering someone. Well, to say accidentally murdered someone is he maybe. Disingenuous. He gets angry in the he moment. He gets caught up in the heat of the moment and yeah. is not able to control his impulses. And um, and like his his best friend, spoilers. His best friend and practically his brother had just been killed. So <laughs> based on Romeo and Juliet, it's kind of hard to. Right. I mean, based on Romeo and Juliet, it's hard to spoil a movie like West Side Story. <laughs> Also, it's 60 years old at this point. So whatever. Uh, yeah. So West Side Story is it's so amazing. And and again, very, very relevant. Um, also, man, the dancing in this movie, that scene when they when they do cool, uh, when they're dancing in the parking garage is one of the most just silly, dynamic, incredible. I mean, the song itself is pretty silly, I'll admit, <laughs> but but the extended dance number where no one is singing is one of the best things ever committed to film. It's so incredible. Um, well, so I love dancing. I had forgotten. Uh, I was, oh, I was watching this one with Jess and because, because she had never seen it before, which I was like, ah, you have to see this movie. It's so good. Anyways. Uh, when we got to the cool song, she reminded me that there was a gap ad that riffed off of, uh, off of that scene. And I was like, Oh, there it was. I remember that now. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. I I did not remember it until she pointed it out. And I was like, that's, that's an interesting movie for, or especially an interesting part of the movie for them to use in, uh, in their ad because the song is, Hey, people just died because of us. And if we're angry, 
people are going to suspect us so we have to play it cool cool, not because like (laughs) hey we're cool daddy oh it's the 60s but like a you have to hide the fact that you were just like an accessory to murder so like just bottle all of those emotions up because that's healthy part of some kind of gap conspiracy (laughs) and and so it's like wait did they just use teen murder as a way to try to sell khakis yes yes they did uh so that's 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 something i mean that seems that's, that seems like pretty par for the course in terms of like craven ad companies i was i was talking to my kids earlier today because they were uh i don't remember what they were talking about but they were saying that it they're talking about something where they use the phrase here's johnny and they're like oh yeah like in that mountain dew commercial <laughs> <laughs> you know what i'm talking about the one with brian cranston where they're riffing on the shining yeah um yeah they were like they're like oh yeah that's like that mountain dew commercial and i'm like oh 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 children <laughs> it was oh, like children. oh no, so, no. so uh because we have just well i have too many movies that i want to talk about uh let's, so many. let's go ahead and start talking about a few more uh since we had mentioned the old west let's go ahead and talk about some of the westerns and there were a few that i watched um a few that i watched leading up to this episode and let me scroll back quite a few. i watched quite a few and i'm sad to say that some of these i had never seen at least not in their entirety until um the last few weeks but I'm also excited to say that watching some of these movies for the first time still has uh, just as strong of an impact, I think, as if I had seen them earlier. All right. So the oh, man. the Westerns that I saw, uh, The Magnificent Seven. Let me keep scrolling. I haven't seen Magnificent Seven. Uh, I think fi- I've seen all the others you watched. Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more. Yeah. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And yeah. Cat Baloo. Are the westerns oh, that... and the man who shot liberty valance. oh and the man who... oh god of course the man who shot liberty valance and jesse james meets frankenstein's daughter and uh true grit so that's what like eight westerns i watched almost as many westerns as you did just movies period for for this movies. episode i know so but i had seen i've seen the dollars trilogy <laughs> previously i watched those actually i got um in my memories on facebook today I had rated the good, the bad and the ugly. So two years ago today, i watched the good, the bad and the ugly for the first time. I and am, man. I am a, a little ashamed to say that this was the first time that I had ever seen the dollars trilogy in its entirety. I had seen bits and pieces here and there, but I had never back to watched the part three. and I've seen back to the future part three, uh, but I hadn't seen all three of the movies in their entirety. And I, I pretty much binged those. No, it's part three. Sorry, I was thinking of part. Oh, well, I'm saying part two is the scene where you get where, where he uh, watches Biff some of it, and then a yeah, of dollars in the hot tub. So, uh, and then there's payoff. In yeah, three. so yeah. I I powered through these movies. I don't remember if I watched two of them in one day or not, but I know that I watched them like in in successive days. And these movies are amazing, and um every positive thing that has ever been said about these movies is accurate. So good, dude. I mean, and I, spe- I, I there, there's one thing that I'm going to say that it's probably going to piss you off a little bit. The good, the bad, okay. and the ugly has, a l- no, no, they're not, they're not boring. 
<laughs> the good, okay. the bad. There are other movies that, that are amazing that are boring. Um, <laughs> what? Oh God! Don't you f- in there, Nathan? I know what you're talking about. <laughs> like 2001: The Space Odyssey. It's boring. Nothing happens. God damn you. So <clears throat> we'll come back to that. Okay. All right. The the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think has a little bit of the uh, Citizen Kane effect going on where it's like, yes, it is as good as everyone says it is. And yes, it is a a masterpiece and just so influential. And like, you can't even hear the good, the bad, and without like whistling the song to yourself. It is amazing cartoons riff on it there's probably an episode of darkwing duck that riffs off of it it is one of the most iconic movies ever full stop it's also true that it's like three hours long because the uh version that i saw had like that 18 extra minutes so it's even longer than the theatrical cut it is a long movie and it's very long while it is amazing I, I think that it would be a much I think that it would have a different impact on people who hadn't heard as much about it. And and again, I'm not trying to say anything negative about it because it is all of those amazing things that have been said. And ah, I, I'll come back to one of the things that I want to talk about in just a second with it. But it's just like I I had heard so much about like, you know, this is Sergio Leone's masterpiece and, you know, like, yeah, fistful of dollars is fine. And for a few dollars more is great. But like, oh, the good and the bad and the ugly and watching all three of them as close together as I did. It's like, yeah, yes, but I don't know. Like, there's just that little bit of it might have been a little overhyped for me, whereas yeah because hardly anyone when they're talking about the dollars trilogy focuses on a fistful of dollars it's almost always good bad and the ugly and uh for a few dollars more in in the very Mm. close second some people would would flip those two since hardly anyone actually focuses on a fistful of dollars that one to me might have stood out the most not saying that it was the best not saying it was the best at all but it's the one that I knew the least about. And and so mm. watching it, it was just like this. This is just pleasantly amazing. And, <laughs> and, and I loved it. And like it was the perfect introduction to the man with no name. And it it had a, it's a very, very it's a very classical kind of structure to it. I think it's a very simple story. I mean, it's it's literally a rip off of Yojimbo. Yeah. Uh, from- and it's a, the kind of thing that's been that's been done and done over and over again. Over lucky over number eleven, like days. just lucky number eleven. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Willis movie, Last Man Standing. I want to say. Um, I mean, almost any movie that's about like a lone wolf guy caught in between two warring tribes or families or gangs or whatever. Like it all comes from. Well, Yojimbo, but then, of course, Fistful of Dollars. <laughs> sure. Um, but no, I think that there's something that's very comforting about that kind of structure, and there's so much fun stuff that you can do with that. Um, Fistful of Dollars is a great movie. I really I really it, like it a lot. 
it's a great movie because it gives and and again like uh clint eastwood in that movie is a great example of he is undoubtedly the main character and you know that he has morals of sorts and uh like there's definitely a lot to admire about him but he's not a good person like you don't watch it saying hey there is like your classic hero who is all like spick and span you know like like he's dirty and he yeah. uh he he lets people just die sure they're bad people that he's letting die but he's also letting a whole lot of collateral damage happen and he he is very very much an anti-hero <clears throat> to the point where i don't even know if he's a hero like i i guess kind of maybe he was helping the town sort of but it also kind of seemed like okay the town wasn't in great uh in great shakes but it also kind of seemed like if you don't bother either of the gangs you're gonna be okay you know yeah well he's (laughs) playing against each other so he can i mean he's been really to he's doing trying to get money he's doing it for a fistful of dollars like yeah of course that's it and and so it's just like he's the good guy sort of but he's only doing it for money and and again like it's ah it it is a great movie but he's not a good guy and then in a few dollars or for a few dollars more you get even more of the like he's like he's good he's a bounty hunter he's bringing in bad people but but he's not good he's still very much a great character and then you have lee van cleef who oh my god i love lee van cleef and so incredible man he god he he is amazing um i love him he's really like for a few dollars more i i think unequivocally good the bad movie is the best movie in the trilogy but for a few dollars more is my favorite mostly because of lee van cleef because he brings so much heart to that movie like he is it almost it's almost heartbreaking that he is the bad guy in the good the mad the ugly because he is we're gonna get to that ever he's also a fantastic bad guy of course but um i love his character and like the whole motif with the pocket watch um or the uh, yeah the pocket watch that plays the music and stuff i love that and the fact that it's his when you get the reveal at the end that his sister is the the one that el indio um you know raped and murdered is so I know we're spoiling these movies. My bad, and whatever, but. 60 years old. Well, and even so, just like, the, I think it's the most emotionally affecting one. I, Bagley, I definitely has a think lot of really big emotional moments throughout it. But I think that like for a few hours more hits the hardest with me. Good, bad, and the ugly is an epic for and a few dollars more. Indio is, is one. Of the I'm, yeah. Yeah, Good Bad and the Ugly is yeah. Good Bad and the Ugly is an epic for a few dollars more. Is like it's a drama. Yes, it's an action western drama, but like you care about these characters and their backstories, and Mm -hmm. and and I also love that little playing on um on theme in terms of fistful of dollars, where Clint Eastwood is there to like sow seeds of distrust even more so than was already there between these two gangs. And then in for a few dollars more, like he and this other bounty hunter are like going back and forth and like they're forming an alliance, but they never really do. And you're not quite sure who to trust. And I, I just love the fact that it's taking yeah. the quote unquote good guys and like they're 
they're also just constantly betraying each other and they're not really trying to help each other so much as just not kill each other in in the meantime and and again the two main characters that you're really rooting for have some dark pasts and then we get yeah. to good the bad also, the ugly. To, oh sorry go ahead okay i just have to briefly for a few dollars more elindio one of the greatest villains of all time in any movie ever like the guy that he, is he the actor who plays him it's like jean maria volante um he's so fucking good dude like he is one of the most reprehensible people ever put to screen i don't understand why more people like why he does not show up more often in lists of like the greatest villains of all time and he's also one of the uh one of the villains in the fistful of dollars too um i wish he was in the good and the bad and the ugly but anyway he's so great i think that guy is an extraordinary actor yeah, um, I, between the three, for a few dollars more, I think is the best. It's not the most epic, but it, it's kind of like Empire Strikes Back, you know, like there, there yeah. was enough. There was enough uh, momentum from the first one to make the second one even better. And because the second one was even better, the third one had to go even bigger. And I, I feel like... Um, for a few dollars more hit that sweet spot for me where it's bigger and it yeah. is definitely a lot more involved, but it's also still like concise and it's still fairly self-contained. Mm-hmm. And then the good, bad and the good, the bad and the ugly, which is a great movie. And I don't want to sound like I'm saying anything bad about it because I do absolutely love it. Again, to me, it didn't quite live up to the expectations. I, I, I think the biggest thing for me is it just felt and again, I watched the extended version. It felt a hair too long. <clears throat> like it felt like some of that back and forth happened one or two too many times. And wait, you say that back and forth? Are you talking about like the uh, the the standoff kind of thing, where they like do the close-ups for a really long time? No, 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 no. Like all of that was fine. The okay. overarching plot. So a two-minute person. I was going to be very mad at you. No, the like, um, like you're following. I don't remember any of their names, but like you're following the ugly, and like he's got Clint Eastwood on the ropes, and then things turn around, and so then you're following Clint Eastwood, and he's got ugly on the ropes, and then you're following Lee Van Cleef, and he's got both of it. There was just a little bit. I, I felt like it just went on just a hair too long of isn't that Clint sort Eastwood, of isn't his character name like just blue eyes or something in the good the bad the ugly or something like he that technically doesn't have a name technically is still the man with no name but um, well, he has names in all of them actually which is like in the first movie his name is joe and the second one his name is monko and then in the third one it's something else but uh no it doesn't have names uh no the oh, other no, guy blondie, keeps calling him, yeah he keeps calling him blondie yeah here's the thing that like as I was trying to grapple Angel with is, is Lee Van Cleef. That's what I was thinking. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you. Go ahead. Yes. So here's the thing that I kept trying to grapple with when I was watching the good, the bad and the ugly and just like, yes, it's great, but why does it keep outranking uh, for a few dollars more? Because again, that movie is so good that it was hard for it to be taught by me. But as I was watching it and and loving it, I, I really don't want to sound like I'm saying anything negatively about it. It is a near perfect movie, and again, the the, the music in all of them is uh, is amazing. Um, and uh, oh man, Mark, we, unfortunately, Inyo Marconi just died a few days oh, ago, God, and man, yeah. 
Talk about one of the greatest composers of all time. I mean, just the music in these movies is so incredible, especially in those like standoff scenes and uh, man, it's yeah, it's the, just so inseparable from it is it is haunting everything. And it's beautiful and yeah. like it sets the tone, and you know exactly what I I love it. His music is perfect. So there's two main things about Good, Bad, and the Ugly that I just absolutely love. And and when I was trying to be like, why is it as good as like people say it is? Like, you know what? For me at least, these two things are what set it so far apart from just other Western movies. On on top of the fact that it's just already a great movie. For one, because of the uh because of the overarching story arc of Clint Eastwood, where in A Fistful of Dollars, he's just, you know, like a guy. He doesn't really seem to have a purpose. He's just wearing his uh wearing his little poncho, just going in, trying to find some money. Eh, he's he's just a dude, you know? Very much mm-hmm. like uh <laughs> George Lucas couldn't have ripped off uh, the story arc anymore. <clears throat> well, he probably could have, but just like in, uh, in star Wars, where when you first meet Luke, like, yeah, fine. He's got some skill and he's pretty impressive, but he still just kind of seems like a farm boy. And then in empire, you know, like he's getting all these skills. And so then in for a few dollars more, like he seems so much more refined, like his, his wardrobe has changed. Uh, he seems to be more on a purpose rather than just going to town to stir up trouble, to make money. He's actually become a bounty hunter. He's doing things to, to bring in the bad. And then when you get to the good, bad and the ugly, he's gone past bounty hunter into like just using uh what's his name using the ugly and i don't have the names pulled up yes uh using tuco to basically to keep getting his own bounty so it's just like eh, rather than actually go out and and rustle up people that will make a difference if i bring them into town i'm just gonna set this deal with this murdering rapist uh thieving and and so like He's not, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly is technically a prequel. If you consider them to be linked together, because the good, the bad, and the ugly is the one where he gets his poncho that he has in a fistful of dollars. So because of that, it's assumed to be a prequel. And also because I think it's kind of, I don't know how obvious it is, but I'm pretty sure that the other two movies are supposed to be post civil war. But I could be wrong about that part. Yeah, no, I'm I'm watching it as they as it is not a prequel, and his poncho, like finding his poncho, wasn't where he got the poncho he had in Fistful of Dollars. It was more of a returning to his roots. That's how I'm watching it, and I don't care what other people say. It's not a okay. prequel for me. I don't really, I don't really think they're even. They're all standalone movies. They don't really well, have to follow any kind. So, of To me, they have to because anyway. that's part of what makes it so great is he has gone from again whether or not bounty hunters are quote-unquote good people he was at least bringing in the people who are doing bad things in good bad and the ugly he is he, he's just doing something for money and again he's not even bringing yeah. in bad people he's just got this deal set to uh to capture um to capture tuco and then to shoot him to shoot the rope while he's hanging and just you know yeah. wash rinse repeat and so like it it feels 
even though he is still a great gunslinger, it feels like he's kind of on the downswing. You know, it feels like he's lost some of uh, maybe some of that integrity, I guess. And then you get to Lee Van Cleef, who absolutely has lost his purpose because he went from like being so singularly driven uh, for finding revenge for his sister that now he's like, well, I don't know. I guess. Oh wait, so you're you're thinking of Lee Van Cleef as the same character? Yes, because oh, okay. again, to me, that's part of what makes it so interesting. Because if that's if a- they're not, if he's just a person, you know, like if these are three completely unrelated movies that just so happen to use some of the same characters and just so happen to, to me, that's less interesting. Like to me, Lee Van Cleef has to be the same person because uh because then again after he finally has like resolved that that vengeance from uh for a few dollars more then he's just kind of lost and and so then all of that um all of that passion that was driving him for vengeance has then just kind of turned to this dark hate and so now he's just just money and killing people indiscriminately and and he is not necessarily nowhere near as good as he was before and the good the bad and the ugly i do not think that that is supposed to represent the singular characters like i do not think that tuco is supposed to be the ugly i do not think that clint eastwood is supposed to be the good and i do not think that lee van cleef is supposed to be the bad i think that doesn't it, doesn't it explicitly say that on screen though at the beginning of the movie yes, it does <laughs> but i oh, you do, could just say that's the title card right i do not think like yes it, it is very explicitly like you see tuco jump out of a window and it says the ugly and the, yes it it shows that i think this is a little bit of a misdirect like I, I do I not read ironically. Yeah. Like I don't think that they're supposed to be the good, the bad and the ugly because they all have some level of good. They all yeah. definitely are doing very bad things and it's made them all kind of ugly people, you know, not necessarily yeah, like absolutely. physically ugly, but like they've got this ugliness in them. And, and so I think that I don't if think they're you, supposed to be very like binary or, or, we exactly trinary well it, binary it would still be it would still be binary in terms of good or bad but like right yeah i don't i don't think that that's supposed to be the case and if it is supposed to be that i don't think it's as good of a movie i think that part of what adds that extra level of of just making it a a great movie once again you're rooting for clint eastwood the entire time because he's clint eastwood but it is he the good guy or is he just the guy that you're most familiar with because he's been in three movies? I mean, of course he's the good guy. He gave that Confederate soldier some. He gave that Confederate soldier a smoke before well, he died. And good guys too. Is it here? Here's the they other show thing. Compassion. Here's the other thing. I think that the good, the bad, and the ugly is not describing the characters. I think that it's describing the country. I think that oh, yeah. the good, the bad, and the ugly is supposed to be talking about the Civil War, where, yeah, well, in that case, there is a clear bad. <laughs> the, the South, the Confederacy, was clearly the bad guys, period. I think that the descriptor of 
like why people are even in war and like even the scene with uh with the bridge where the the union soldiers they just seem exhausted and like no one wants to be there and it's like why are why are we even fighting the stupid war and and so you get that little bit of war is ugly and some people are doing it for good reasons but some people are obviously doing very bad things or they're doing it for the wrong reasons and and watching the good the bad and the ugly as more of a um as more of a metaphor for the civil war and what it did to america to me that makes it so much more fascinating and and part uh and is part of what gives it that iconic and very deservedly epic feel um yeah i think so i think that's why it's it's always considered to be the best of the trilogy because it is it is truly an epic it is it combines all of the elements of the previous two movies into just something that is on so on a so much just grander scale than just about anything you've probably seen in movies at that time, especially in Italian cinema. Um, and and I think too that there's a lot more of just like a thematic resonance. It's a movie that feels like it is really about something, yeah, beyond what you see in film itself in a way and i think that um, i could probably speak a little bit more uh, eloquently about it if i if it hadn't been two years since i've seen it but because <laughs> i can't think of any specific well maybe um, you should have rewatched it but man let me just tell you too sergio leone is there has never been a director who can use a close-up better than sergio leone i mean he is just a madman with the close-ups and somehow like in that final scene where it's just like constant back and forth close-ups and getting closer and closer and it goes on for what feels like 20 minutes it feels like it should come across as a parody as like some kind of joke or something but it is one of the most intense and just magnetic scenes in movie history it's so incredible with that music and also lee van cleef has the greatest face in cinema history like he has that kind of cat like i love i just like could stare at him for hours i mean there's something about his face that is incredible it's he, so so much personality in it i mean this in the best way possible he looks like a sinister cartoon fox he does he absolutely he really does i mean that's that's what's so incredible about it like there's just he doesn't even have to speak oh so um, uh, that that ending scene uh that's another reason why this has to be part of like an actual trilogy and not just three movies that were made and why it can't be a prequel is it makes the showdown between Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood so much more powerful. Like I, I think that the good, the bad, and the ugly can stand on its own. And I think that people could watch them in any order and be fine. I don't, I don't think yeah. it's a prequel. It to me, it doesn't work as a prequel. I've always I've always thought of it as a prequel, but at the same time, I also don't even I don't necessarily even think of him. I don't even I don't even think of Clint Eastwood as playing the same character in all of them. I, I that's one of the things that I love about this trilogy is the fact that you could view it both ways. You could think of it as like, yeah, you can put this together and think of it as one man's journey, um, or you could just see it as three totally separate movies, just about totally different characters. I think. Um, although I do think. Even if you look at it as a trilogy, whether you put Good, the Bad, and the Ugly as a prequel or not, I don't think of Lee Van Cleef as 
playing the same character in both movies. Even if Clint Eastwood is playing the same character in all movies. No, he, Lee Van Cleef he has to. Lee Van Cleef has to be the same person. I don't know. I'm too I'm too optimistic for that. But no, I like the I, idea. Of, you know, I have to go back and rewatch it and, and with that in mind, because no, at no point did I ever even like think of it as a as the last part chronologically. I mean, it, it makes it so much more heartbreaking to especially after sure, yeah. just having watched for a few dollars more, it makes it more heartbreaking for him to be the quote unquote bad guy. But I see that being more dramatically it, resonant to like with the backdrop of the civil war, I feel like there's probably um, yeah, a correlation. It, well, it makes more sense that after he found finally uh, found revenge that he just didn't really have anything else keeping him going. It's almost like the memory of his sister is what was keeping him good and lawful as lawful mm. as bounty hunters can be. But then once that was over, it's kind of like, well, all right. You know, like I, 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 I feel like, like he lost his I purpose like, afterwards. I, yeah. I like that a lot because I feel like so many movies that are about revenge end with the revenge and then everything is great. They got their revenge. It's over. Everything's fine now, but I feel like there's far fewer movies that really look at the reper- repercussions of, what happens after you get your revenge? Um, so I do like that idea. I have to, I need to rewatch these movies anyway, because I absolutely adore all of them, but, uh, so I'd like to rewatch it with that in mind. Speaking of movies, we should probably keep talking about more movies. Uh, cause man, there's so yeah. many that I want to talk about that. I know that we're not going to have man. a chance to, I'm, I'm probably really going to do talk about, uh, the man who shot Liberty balance. Too. We, we're going to talk about man who shot Liberty balance and true grit. And so there's probably only a few more that we'll actually like focus some in-depth conversation on. Um, and, and then I'll probably just do like a rapid fire of some of the other ones that, God, that I wish that we had time for. And just like all the other decades episodes that we've done, uh, I, I do really want us to eventually go back and do full reviews on all of these, even though we might've just kind of spilled the beans for, uh, <laughs> what the review of the dollars trilogy would be. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's let's stay in the Western genre, and let's talk at least a little bit about Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Mm. Um, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is is pretty interesting, especially comparing it to the good the, or just the spaghetti <laughs> westerns in general, because the spaghetti westerns feels like a total like a Western. What? Well, just that's the order that I watched them. Like You're I got through the him. dollars trilogy and then I think that the next one that I watched was the man who shot Liberty Valance. And it was like, so I went from like, like the old West, like the raw oh. gritty dirty to, 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 to John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. And just, it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Cause like the, jarring the spaghetti was, a total reinvention of what a Western is and could be with like more brutal violence and, and, you know, grittier. You don't have very like the morality isn't very black and white. Um, And then you go to something like man who shot Liberty Valance though, which definitely feels like almost like an elegy for the classic, classic American Western. It feels like the last gasp of a genre that John Ford, John Ford kind of created in a certain way, like what we think of when we think of, old Hollywood Westerns. Um, it literally starts with the funeral with a funeral of John Wayne. And it has this kind of mournful tone throughout. And, you know, like I said, I do think that it is kind of like the last, 
great Western of the classic era. It is kind of saying goodbye to the, you know, to the very conservative kind of idea of what a Western is. And I love that the movie is basically kind of positioned as an argument on um, what it means to have a gun and what that, like what that represents. It is kind of like a a whole gun control argument to a certain extent. Like I don't want to go. I love the the conversation that takes place about like why Jimmy Stewart won't own a gun. Um, yeah, I hate the fact that he then gets a gun. Like I, it, it's almost I I don't know what message they're oh, trying no, to go I for. Love it. No, this is what I love about this movie because ultimately when he does get a gun, that's kind of his downfall it's it's his downfall and also the reason why he has everything that he has but ultimately it's all a lie you know what i mean like it's it doesn't look see that as an actual heroic moment for him it is i don't know and what's really fascinating about it too is they mentioned early in the movie that like you know john wayne he was like the pro gun you got to have that you gotta you know you need that to as a show of strength or whatever but then you learn that he stopped carrying a gun when he was older, that he ended up seeing Jimmy Stewart's point of view. And I just, I find that fascinating. I wish we could have gotten a little bit more from his perspective, but I think in a certain way, it's like the way of the lie that he told kind of weighed him down. And he realized that the gun was, was not the tool that he thought it was in a certain way, that it was actually something that was preventing him from being a real man and really dealing with issues in in a way, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's fascinating. It kind of just reminds me of how often you hear, like, I think that most people who like open carry today and a lot of ways are compensating are compensating to a certain degree, but I think they're scared. Like that's what's oh, so weird to are. me. Like you're, you're someone who is so afraid to go out in public that you cannot not have a gun. Like there's something very interesting about that idea because it's like, some of it is also others for being fearful well i think that some of it is also like just i i think that it's like the desire to be a badass you know like oh yeah you know like i i carry my gun because that way you know if if shit starts going down like i'm there like oh yeah sure buddy you you go ahead and think that um and you know like i know plenty of people who carry don't fully understand why they do uh, but yeah, like almost all of them talk about it in terms of protection. It, exactly. But, yeah. mm, very quick side tangent. The same people who talk about carrying a gun for protection are the same people who are not wearing their masks for protection and the exact <laughs> same people who don't think that rerouting some of the money from the police into other parts of the community are good. And it's like, Hey, wait a second. If the police are here to defend you, then why do you need to carry a gun? <laughs> like, obviously something's not lining up. You're, you're, you're full of hypocrisy. We're talking about movies. <clears throat> about movies. Yes. That are the things, the political things that we're talking about. Yes. <laughs> so man who shot Liberty of Valance was much better than I was expecting it to be. It's a, such a good movie, dude. It is so great. I here, here is why I love the movie. Jimmy Stewart. I, I never thought that I would say that about a Western. <laughs> but have you not seen any well, Jimmy Stewart let, Westerns let, before? Sorry, let, let me uh, let me correct myself. 
I love the story arc of Jimmy Stewart. I think that, uh, no, I hadn't. Um, I, I love the, um, just the entire conversation about like, no, I'm not going to carry a gun because that's not the way that we solve things. And I, this was such a simple moment, but it was a beautiful moment when, um, when he just assumes that his future wife, I don't remember her name and I don't feel like looking it up right now. Uh, the main actress in the movie, when he just assumes that she can read, like there's no like assumption that she can't or something that she shouldn't or wouldn't. It's just like, uh, Oh, here you read this. Like, I don't, it, it was just such a simple thing of just showing some of that equality of like, yeah, why wouldn't a woman read? And then when he starts yeah. to school, like it, it's for the, uh, for the Hispanic and like Native American children, and it's just like, mm-hmm. it's it's very little things, but they're beautiful and and I love them. And that's, that's the thing that I love about John Ford, and and to a certain extent, some of John Wayne's movies. But John Ford is kind of known as like this macho tough guy, made all these badass westerns or whatever. But his movies all of the ones of his that I've seen are so tender and beautiful and thoughtful. And you mentioned the school scene, which I just have to briefly say this. There is a moment in that scene that is, I think absolutely extraordinary, especially for a movie set or that was made in like 1962. And it's the scene where Pompey, uh, you know, John Wayne's kind of hired hand. He's a black man. And um, France is teaching him how to read. Jimmy Stewart is teaching him how to read. And, you know, he's trying to get him to memorize the uh, declaration. It's it's not the Declaration of Independence. Was it not? Uh, no, no, it's the Declaration of Independence. But um, Rance incorrectly corrects him and says it's the Constitution, which is kind of fascinating. Um, but anyway, there's a part where he's like trying to remember the part that says that all men are created equal. And uh, Rance finishes it for him. He's like, oh, I knew that, Mr. Rance, but I just plum forgot it. And Jimmy Stewart's reply is, that's all right, Pompey. A lot of people forget that part of it. Yeah. And it's like that all men are created equal. And it's like the fact that that is him talking to a black man in 1962, I think, is just truly kind of profound in and just beautiful. And I love that that moment so much in that movie. It really Especially kind of struck the- me down a little bit. Yeah, especially because the delivery of that line isn't like a, yeah, it's the end of it. And so people like trail off and don't remember it. That's not how we delivered it. The delivery of the line is, yeah, lots of people don't treat everyone equally because people yeah, exactly. are the worst. And yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's such a great delivery. Beautiful, beautiful moment in the movie such so, a good movie so as much um, as i love jimmy stewart and as much as i love uh just it, it really is a great movie i wasn't expecting to love it as much as i did there are two things that that just are probably my favorite things about uh the man who shot liberty valance and both of them start with uh lee lee, lee, lee marvin and lee, lee marvin Cleef. yeah Oh my God. First off, Lee Van Cleef, I think has like one line in the entire movie. He still just looks so just, he, he He has a presence. Yeah, he does. It's yeah. Like uh, he doesn't even need to speak. And like, cause there was like, there was a moment in the movie where I was looking at him like, is that fucking Lee Van Cleef in the background of this movie? Like (laughs) that's so weird. And every single time he was on screen, the scene where they're the like in the point, diner automatically drawn to him. Well, the scene where they're in the diner is like, yep, that's Lee Van Cleef, but Lee Marvin, yeah. I 
I love Lee Marvin so much. Okay, I've only seen like two movies, but still, Lee Marvin. Uh, He's one of the best heavies in movie history. <laughs> He's so good. It it's like if they ever did a a, um, a biopic on Lee Marvin, he should be played by Tom Waits. Or if like uh, yeah, Tom Waits ever that. went back in time and he they made a movie younger. about Tom Waits, Lee yeah. Marvin should have played him. <laughs> he is just so. Again, he just has one of those personalities that anytime he's on screen and and so much of it is his voice. Like he just has like just yeah. this booming just like I he's he's like a white James he's Earl so Jones. Good at playing, and, yeah, he's so good at playing uh drunk too in this movie and he also has maybe my favorite death scene in a movie. Like the way that he dies which is not a spoiler because he is Liberty Valance, so I mean <laughs> the, and it happened, the name it ha- of the movie is the man how, who shot Liberty Valance. So yeah, it's surprising how late in the movie that his death actually happens. It's like almost at the end. Um, but his way that he dies in this movie is one of the most like over dramatic, but also feels totally appropriate death scenes in a movie. Like I just love the way that he kind of stumbles for a long time and then falls over. Uh, it's just it's, it's fantastic. It's because when people get he, shot in the stomach, they don't just fall over dead like movies are he, very like, falls bad to his, yeah he like falls to his knees and then tries to stand up again and then tumbles over like just the way that he plays it is is incredible yeah movies are very bad about showing uh what happens when people are actually shot which i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing uh i, I don't know anywho um <laughs> I, I want i want to say so much more about the man who shot liberty valance because it is a very solid movie but there's also more that I want to say about other movies. Um, um, the I, okay, yeah, I, I, very I, cynical, I, but uh, appropriately so. I do have one more thing to say about the man who shot Liberty Valance. This was my first John Wayne movie. I am not a John Wayne guy, and mm. I. I, I need to watch more of his movies because maybe, maybe my view will change a little bit, but at least in the man who shot Liberty Valance, he just, when you have Lee Marvin and Lee Van Cleef with such a powerful presence, and then you have John Wayne just constantly saying, well, Pilgrim, that's my state. And it's just like, I don't, you, you shouldn't be able to go toe to toe with Lee Marvin. Like it, it doesn't seem right. And and I didn't. <laughs> I don't love him. I think that he did fine. I, like I, I grew to appreciate him more over the course of the movie. It's fine, but with it being my first <laughs> full movie with him, I just, I didn't, I didn't love it. You definitely, you definitely have to watch Stagecoach and the searchers the searchers is phenomenal Uh, you did watch true grit which i've never seen actually i watched true grit which was my segue uh i watched true grit and i loved true grit again first time that i saw it i did see it the uh coen brothers remake several years ago um and like i I loved that movie but (laughs) watching very good Watching the original, I was surprised first off at how like similar both of them were while also still feeling very different. And it 
God, True Grit's a great movie. I I was expecting to not enjoy it as much because I I love the Coen Brothers and how could it possibly stand up to it? But watching the original was like, no, this is just as great of a movie, and I can absolutely see why it was remade. And uh, the people that they got to uh, to re to replay the characters. But I realized as I was watching it, uh, I do love old John Wayne, John Wayne in true grit. I feel like that's the John Wayne that um, I feel like that's the John Wayne that makes sense. You know, like he's past his prime. He's he's just kind of fat and surly and (laughs) he's just like not a good person. And. Like he he doesn't have yeah, he that. won his Oscar for yeah it's a great movie and it is a great portrayal because he doesn't have that well I'm the good guy pilgrim sort of attitude about him and and I just I don't know I've never loved that and I I need to again watch some of his earlier movies maybe it'll be different maybe Man Who Shot Liberty Valance was just like a awkward timing but I just. Eh. But yeah, in True Grit, he's so, so good. He he plays just a surly old dude perfectly. And and I did love him in that movie. So so there's that. Um, but yeah. He, even I, in- I really like John Wayne as an actor. I think he does a lot of very similar <clears throat> roles. I think he just has a fantastic presence and kind of charisma that and I love. The, I feel like he's a, the kind of actor who, even though he plays a lot of similar roles, I think he's very willing to play around with his image um, in some interesting ways. Like in The Searchers, he is not a good guy at all, despite the fact that he is constantly like he usually is the good guy in movies. He very rarely played villains, um, and he's still like the main character in The Searchers. But like the whole movie is like a few a futile quest for revenge and he's like a raging racist and the movie doesn't let him off the hook for it and i don't know i really like that about it um he's great in that movie yeah i i need to see that one uh all right <clears throat> one more western I, I i saw uh whatever jesse james meets frankenstein's <laughs> daughter it that the copy that i have has a uh, joe bob commentary and you know that's that's interesting um but the the movie itself, it's it's fine, it's whatever. But uh, the one that I did want to mention, and there's not much that I really want to say about this, but Cat Baloo, <laughs> Cat Baloo's fun. It's about um, uh, uh, is it Jane Fonda? Is that who it is? Pretty sure it's Jane I think, Fonda. I think Jane Fonda is the star of that. I've never seen this one, but I think Jane Fonda. Yeah, is in so it. Yeah, Jane she Marvin's in it too. Yes, he is. So she is uh, like a, a school teacher that has just graduated from whatever school you went to back in the old West and like very prim and proper and very just like, oh, my pearls sort of person. Um, oh, like the like a school of manners kind of thing. Yeah. And so she goes back home and uh, the her, her dad is losing money left and right because the city is trying i think like they're trying to get his water supply or something basically they're trying to run him off the land and so like the city hires a hired gun to assassinate her father 
And then, uh, because, you know, police are never corrupt, when Jane Fonda goes to the police to try to confront them and say, arrest this man, he just shot my father, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's been sitting here all day. Because, like, the entire town is in the pockets of, like, one rich man. Which, again, not Mm -hmm. relevant at all to, you know, current situations. Uh, And so, because the law has failed her, and because the town has failed her, and because money has obviously failed her, like, she turns to a life of crime. And um, Mm -hmm. and it's got minstrels, not really minstrels, but, like, it's got, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Like, in Shakespearean, like, the chorus, was that the ones who, like would come in and like sing like some the Greek of the, chorus. Yeah. Like they would sing some of that transition between one scene and the next. Or like the, uh, like in Hercules, the animated Hercules movie at the beginning, they have the, uh, exactly like that, but with Nat King Cole and stubby K. So, <laughs> those, Oh man. Yeah. Are you serious? That's yes, that I am. awesome. So they're singing the transitions to fill in the story that you don't actually see. And, uh, and, oh, and it's just sounds like a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. And there's a few scenes that a few scenes that didn't really hold up as well. That might be racist or might be a commentary about how uh, white people did not treat indigenous people as well at all. Cause there's a, uh, a native american hired hand and again like some of the lines kind of like west side story some of the lines feel like i don't know if i should be laughing at this and then other lines feel like oh yeah you're pointing out that like native americans get just mistreated left and right um but lee marvin is kind of like the john wayne of true grit where he is an old drunk has been gunslinger and he is perfect like that was my introduction to lee marvin when i was a kid was drunk old lee marvin can't even shoot straight unless he is drunk and so like throughout the movie anytime that they're about to go do something (laughs) they have to feed him some whiskey for him to get up like the liquid courage to be it's just it is funny and and I love it and uh, it's got some you know mildly problematic areas here and there but it's 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 just a great movie. well most westerns do <laughs> yes most old westerns do all right. all right oh god there there are so many more that I want to talk about uh, that we don't have time for Nathan you shouldn't have watched forty movies what is wrong with you so many things um. All right, there. There. Probably... Have you ever seen the Wild Bunch? It was in my short list of ones that I was going to get okay. to that I didn't have a chance to because so good. Um, speaking of transgressive movies, that is an, an extraordinarily violent movie, and that's the '60s is also where we really start to see like so much more graphic violence and in, in mainstream films. You know, like Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, get there at the end you've seen Bonnie and Clyde right oh my god well I mean yes also like they're historical so I I know what happens to them um, right that, that I also wasn't expecting that one to be as great as it was like there's a lot of movies from the 60s that oh, I know man. are great then there are movies that I watch where it's just like this Bonnie and Clyde is so good it's so good it is yeah it, I watched a lot of movies where the main characters died at the end. 
uh, Bonnie and Clyde, which Again, is amazing. Very pessimistic. All these movies are very pessimistic. Oh, yep. like, like I watched the birds, the Hitchcock's the birds, which has like such a downer kind of ending. Um, Easy Rider, which is just so nihilistic and just so pointless. I'm so, Easy Rider is the one that great. I'm most angry that I haven't watched because I've read the book this year, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. It's I still haven't seen Easy Rider. It it is it is a visual experience. Like I don't think there's any lines of dialogue for like the first fifteen or twenty minutes. Okay, maybe not that mm-hmm. far, but like it it's a ways into it before there's even the first line of dialogue. Uh, it's it's great. It's not what I was expecting. It it things happen, but like there's not really a plot. Like the, yeah, there's still- there's something that sets things in motion, and and then. Mm-hmm. Then nothing happens. It's it is a great the, and boring uh, movie. American, the grand American tradition of appropriating other culture, where you get that a lot in like those French New Wave movies. Like Breathless is a movie where it starts off with uh, with a guy accidentally murdering a police officer, and then like he just kind of bums around town trying to find money for the rest of the movie, and nothing really happens other than him just kind of like talking to a woman in a hotel room for a long time and trying to get her to sleep with him. And, uh, and yeah, there's not really a whole lot that goes on, but man, it's so good. And it, uh, it's also very interesting because it's the movie that to a certain extent invented the jump cut, uh, because like the original cut of the movie was like two and a half hours long. So to shorten it, Godard, uh, basically just cut out all the dead air in, in (laughs) conversations. Uh, which is really fascinating way to do that. And it cut it down to like 90 minutes, cut almost an hour out of the movie. (laughs) So there's lots of jump cuts and fractured editing. And you start to see that later in American cinema with uh, one movie. I absolutely have to talk about that is one of the best movies I think I've ever seen is medium. Cool. I'll talk about that in a little bit, but, um, Oh God, I didn't have a chance to get to that one. Uh, Did you watch a trailer or anything for it? No, no, only what you told me about it, but I, I didn't have a chance to get to it. I got to talk to you about that one because it's the, it's like the, I feel like it's one of the progenitors of like aloof protagonist who's kind of an asshole and he's not someone you really root for. And it's a plot that meanders and isn't, doesn't even really have a plot. It's just people kind of hanging out. And, uh, and yeah, you get all these like crazy jump cuts where the narrative is super fractured. Like anytime there's an action scene, you basically only see the very end of it. If there's a, like the scene where he shoots the police officer, it shows the police officer approaching him. And then all of a sudden a gun goes off and the police officer is just like on the ground. It's, it's really interesting the way that it kind of probably mirrors the feeling of being in a high stress situation like that, where it all just kind of happens at once. And it feels like a blur once it's over. Uh, medium cool does that in a really fascinating way. Anyway, I didn't mean to get too off track, but uh, I just think it's interesting. This entire episode it's, has been off track. That and and like I also watched Persona, an Ingmar Bergman film, um, which is incredible. Um, I might talk about that in a little bit more depth in a minute because I have a theme that I want to talk about with a few other movies. But uh, there's stuff that you see in a lot of these earlier foreign films that end up being adopted in later American movies. That's um, that kind of kicks off that more independent spirit that you get from the late '60s and on through the '70s with the those American new wave directors like Scorsese and Spielberg and Coppola and 
Bogdanovich, which, oh shit, I forgot I watched Targets. Too. <laughs> oh man. There are so many movies that we need to talk about. We're, we're going to have to like All right, actually yeah. do episodes on these. I know. I think I have one major theme that I'll get into, but I'll let you. Oh, no, no, I'll no. Let I, you no, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let you finish. Uh, no, go ahead and do your theme because I was just scrolling through and looking at. Um, I'm looking at everything that I watched and like, oh man, I really want to talk about that one. And I really want to talk about that one. And I need to talk about that. There's so many that I want to talk about and I'm not going to be able to do all of them justice in, uh, in short segments since we're already, yeah, I don't know, probably an hour and a half into this episode. I have no idea how long mm-hmm. this episode is at this point. Um, so I'm not going to be able to talk about these nearly as much as I want. Some of them do deserve their own episode. Almost every movie yeah. that I watch, I want to do a full episode on. Some of these some of these almost need an entire episode just to uh to analyze them and to dissect some of our thoughts about them. And I know that I'm not going to be able to get into nearly as much detail as I would like. Um so go ahead and and talk about your theme and then I'll just kind of do a, a little bit of a rapid fire talking about how, again, the sixties um, had a lot of counterculture and a lot of pessimism and a lot of pushing boundaries. And, and I'll just kind of highlight some of the examples. There might be a couple of them that we, you know, spend a couple of minutes on, but mm. I, yeah, try trying to narrow down on this list, which one or two do I want to focus on? I have 10 so yeah I just I we just don't have time for that <laughs> it's not on this episode um, we'll, we'll do full episodes later for sure um so yeah I think one of the major themes that kind of uh popped up at first it was unintentional but then I kind of leaned into it a little bit with some of my, the later movies that I watched but you know I mentioned that there were movies started to become so much more self-referential and I think that there was this very interesting kind of experimental side of movie making that came through where it was kind of like deliberately pointing out the artifice of film um, or like really playing with the film form, like kind of the established rules of filmmaking in some interesting ways. So um, for example, like persona, it's an Ingmar Bergman film Um this is the third of his movies that I've seen, but this one is his most like kind of radically experimental. It begins with a montage of images from like the beginning of film history. It has absolutely nothing to do with the movie. The movie is about um, an actress who, who kind of out of nowhere just stops talking. Um, and then it's about this nurse, this nurse kind of comes in and starts tending to her and speaking to her and kind of about the, the relationship that develops between them. Um, it's a very spare kind of movie. You can tell it was influenced heavily by somebody like Dreyer with like Passion of Joan of Arc, which we watched earlier. It's got that like relies a lot on close-ups and just spare settings, and so that way you can focus in on the performances and the, the emotions of it. But anyway, it begins showing like basically the beginning of cinema, like really brief, almost subliminal images of silent film, like you get kind of the Melies, like people dressed up in like ghost outfits or skeleton outfits and stuff. And then you have, for a brief moment, an erect penis pops up on the screen. Sure. Which 
very interesting because it's kind of like the joke at the end of uh, Fight Club. They do the same thing, which is almost definitely pulled from Persona. Uh, <laughs> also, the first time that I so far have seen a movie with nudity in it um, in any of our decades movies. Um, well, that's not so true. You lean into the, we have the, what other movies have nudity in them that we've seen? Um, other than I mean, like the. Uh, I mean, the there, uh, there was uh, demon nudity in Hexen. Um, there I was. Yeah, I mean, I guess there were butts. But. I, I, I started out with um, my bridge films and like the studying films, the, yeah. <laughs> the human form. Um, well, this one is very explicitly sexual, though. Like, there's a scene in the movie where um, one of the I women. I remember. Describes an encounter, like an orgy on a beach. And she describes it in such graphic detail that it almost feels pornographic, even though she's just talking about it. Like it is so explicit that like when I think about the scene, I feel like I can, I feel like it showed me what happened. Sure. Uh, It's about like going onto a beach and these two boys came up and they start having sex and like it goes into so much detail that I, especially for, it was made in like 1966. I think I was pretty shocked to see like how graphic it was. But I mean, of course it was a Swedish film. So it was, a, uh, you know, the, those foreign films are typically a lot more frank when it comes to things like sexuality and, um, and things of that nature. But anyway, sure. um, so, and, but then you also get like, um, scenes of like nails being driven into someone's hands and like, it's just very weird the way that it's playing with form and, those images and the way that they don't really have anything to do with anything. And then there's a scene halfway through the movie that I think is one of the most startling things I've ever watched. And it's like this big moment where there's kind of a rift in the relationship between the two women and the film literally stutters and like starts melting and rips. Uh, Like it, it simulates that happening as if the film had gotten stuck in a projector and melted in the light. Sure. Um, and like, it has this like horrible screeching sound and everything. And it, I was listening to it in headphones and it literally made me yell out loud, <laughs> not expecting it to happen. Um, and then there's also a scene where it literally shows, uh, Ingmar Bergman filming one of the scenes that you were watching, which is really fascinating. And the movie is kind of just about like the fact that, you know, the actress kind of, you, the implication is the actress stops talking because she wants to stop performing uh, but at the same time, like to stop talking is a performance in and of itself. And I feel like, I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty experimental film and I'm sure that there are so many different meanings that people can latch onto with it. But in my mind, it felt like an attempt to try to understand why we as humans are constantly performing for one another, the way that like we act differently depending on the company that we keep, um, like all of life is a performance in a certain way and that we're all wearing different masks depending on the people that we're interacting with. And it is just a gorgeous, incredible movie that I really enjoyed a lot. Um, But anyway, to get back into other movies that do this too, like targets is another movie that I think is really interesting because it is explicitly commenting on the film industry. It's a, it tells two different stories. One of them is about Boris Karloff, um, who plays an aging actor. And it actually starts with a movie that you watched, The Terror, a Roger yes. Corman movie. 
it starts with the end of the terror. Um, and then like the lights come up in this screening room and Boris Karloff looks embarrassed by the movie. Like that sounds about right. Like, Oh, I can't believe I was in this. And he decides to retire from acting. <laughs> that sounds about right. So that sounds about right. The terror was interesting, <laughs> but not necessarily good. Right. Yeah. It's one of those movies that Corman is like, Hey, I've got an extra, I've got a few extra shooting days and a little extra money. I'm going to shoot a second movie now that I've once I, once I've finished the second movie <laughs> with Boris um, Karloff and Jack Nicholson. So, mm-hmm. but it's interesting because because in the screening room is also Peter Bogdanovich playing a direct the director of the movie who wants him to star in another movie and that movie is Targets, which is the movie you're watching. Uh, um, Boris Karloff decides that he wants to retire from acting. And um, there's this second story that plays out that is about a man, a uh, very buttoned up kind of Matt Damon looking white dude who uh, wants to, goes on a killing spree, essentially. Like he goes out and has a shooting on a highway and then he ends up kind of shooting up a drive-in theater. And um, eventually the two stories kind of converge in a pretty interesting way. But it's it feels like a movie that's attempting to kind of like it's looking back on Karloff's legacy as a horror icon and then bridging that with kind of the horrors of everyday life in 1960s. It's like, you know, in the 1930s, we were all scared of monsters like Frankenstein and Dracula and stuff. But now these are the horrors that we have to deal with in real life. Like there are actually people who are going out and just mass murdering. It was inspired by like a, the university of Texas shooting that happened in 64. 65 or six and mid to late sixties, um, which at the time was the deadliest mass shooting in history and 13 people were killed. And now of course, you know, we have an we epidemic have. of gun violence where our bit largest mass shooting ever had 60 people murdered. And um, I don't know, but it was just kind of fascinating the way that it is simultaneously implicating film and media and the way that we glorify violence, but also trying to explain like there's more to it than that. Like this does not cause violence. Um, so yeah, that was just well, something and, that I, yeah. And like, that's one of the really interesting things about movies that we do not have time to get into right now is <laughs> the intention from the director is not, or not just the director, but the writer, director, cinematographer, you know, people involved in actually making uh, the movie what it is. It's not always what people get out of the movie. Um, you know, so like even with what you were just talking about with uh, like how we glorify violence, but that's not all that was going on. You know, like one of the strongest examples of that, I think, is with natural born killers where it is an excessively violent yeah. movie that some people watch and are like entertained by the violence. Like they are glorifying the violence on screen, but the entire movie is like a, a critique about how it's critiquing the glorification of violence and like pointing out why it's a bad thing, but it's just doing yeah. it by showing you how bad violence is rather than saying violence is bad. And we're going to show you that by not showing you any violence. And, yeah. and so like, it is really weird that sometimes the movies that do include that excessive violence aren't 
doing it to try to glorify it. It's almost like trying to say, no, violence is bad, people. What's wrong with you? And yet then people will turn around and use those movies as examples like oh well see this is why people are violent it's like well no that's not i know yeah it's not exactly what's happening there yeah all right um, uh i want to talk about so many movies but it is very late and honestly my brain's starting to shut down a little bit mm. <laughs> and i am i am so tired so i'm gonna try to God, there's so many that I want to talk about. And Anthony, you watched 2001 A Space Odyssey for the first time. I In its entirety. I had seen parts of it before. First time that I watched it in its entirety for the first time. Uh, 2001 is beautiful and visually stunning and absolutely amazing and boring. And I love it <laughs> and nothing happens. Oh, man. You know what? Listen, Nathan, I... <laughs> it, I am... I, I understand. There are lots of scenes that stretch out for a very long time. I, for one, I've seen 2001 like three or four times. I really love this movie. I can't explain it because like, I feel like I should be bored by it, but there's something about the way that those damn satellites dance with one another. That is just, it, <laughs> it is so mesmerizing to me. It is a piece of art. It is beautiful. And like I, I was mesmerized by it. And when I was watching it, I was just like, how is this movie as beautiful as it is? And, and, and I could not stop thinking, oh God. So when I was watching 2001, I could not stop thinking about, uh, one of the little like mid credits or post credits, um, clips from survival of the film freaks when Chris Gore is talking about like, why don't they ever show anyone use the bathroom in 2001? And I could not stop thinking about that the entire <laughs> yeah. time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Kyle Kukta and Bill Fulkerson. Thank you for, uh, getting Chris to go on about that because now it's forever stuck in my head. Whenever I watch 2001, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it, it is beautiful. And, and I, uh, Adore this movie and it is a movie that I am absolutely going to be rewatching and like if we were doing a full episode on it there would be a ton that we have to say and there are some very important themes that are underlying and and driving the overarching story and I do think that there is you know like this much larger cosmic tale that's being told just nothing happens like that's not that's not a bad thing i'm not saying that i was bored i was i was fully engaged the entire time that i was watching it it's just boring like nothing happens i i i love it thank you and i have different different definitions of boring we do like i understand i like i get why someone would say that 2001 is boring but in my mind, like, even if it is, like, I feel like if I am engaged by what is happening on screen, I don't think of that as boring, I guess. It's, this isn't the best example, but um, it's the only one that I can think of right now. It is like a Mark Rothko painting. I, I think that I, I love Rothko. Like, I think that um, I, I think that there is a lot more depth going on in his paintings than just what it seems like on the surface. That being said, it like it's very geometric. Like he does like blocks. 
Like that's it. Like there's one Rothko mm-hmm. painting where it's just like like a like a red block and a blue block above it, and like that's it. It looks like someone uh, who should be wearing their glasses, but who isn't looking at a couple of Legos. It's yeah. still it, it is still a beautiful piece of art. There's just not much going on with it. There's more stuff going on on the surface, blah 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 blah. But like just it, it's beautiful and and it's simple and it's plain. Now, 2001 is not simple. It's not plain. Boring. I, I, but again, I love it. I'm not <laughs> saying that as a bad thing. I'm not saying that I was bored and wanted to turn it off. It's just not much happens. It's a great movie. Love it though. Um. All right. So, <laughs> sure, just, sure. Just a, a a few kind of quick examples. Uh, again, like highlighting that counterculture. Uh, not really having protagonists or having the main character be bad or challenging uh, the status quo of society, like all of these counterculture things. Uh, here are some of the movies that I saw that I definitely recommend. There's others that I saw that eh. uh, the Italian job, uh, the original from 1969 with Michael Caine. It is, it's great. I, I love it. And um, it doesn't have an ending in the same way that easy rider has an ending, but it definitely has an ending that um, there's, there's a lot to discuss with the ending in terms of whether or not it was a good, smart decision, or if it's just going to piss people off. Uh, that's, that's one that I would love to talk about. Cause yeah, the, I'd say the, the ending, same thing about the ending to medium cool. It's just, I, I, it's like the Italian job doesn't, there's not a resolution. It just stops. And it's still a great movie, though. I absolutely love it. Uh, I watched a bunch of Corman movies, and the, uh, Corman's always an interesting watch. The best of the ones that I watched, though, was uh, Little Shop of Horrors, which every time that I watch mm. it, it only gets better and better and better. One of my favorite things about this rewatch was uh, noticing that Dick Miller was just eating a flower in most of his scenes. he's such a great character actor there's a fun little anecdote about that in the the dick miller documentary um where basically like that's just one of his defining characteristics like the fact that he got his start as an extra as a featured extra and he would always try to come up with some kind of dick millerism in the background to make himself stand out Um, eating a flower is one of those things that'll do it (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> He's so much fun. You can always count on him to do something fun to make it to make his character to really like flesh out his character in some fun ways. And it it also like there's not really a hero. Like the main character is murdering people to feed a plant. So uh, yeah, uh, Ski Trip Attack was another Corman film that overall it wasn't great, but there was. Um, there was one scene in a cabin where American soldiers like go in and uh, take this German woman hostage. Cause it's during world war two. And there's a conversation about like whether or not they're actually doing the good or right thing and whether or not they're mistreating her. And she's saying something like, or someone is basically saying, what do you think that they would have done any different if they had like kidnapped one of our women? And so there's a little bit of the like, 
is there ever a quote-unquote good guy like there's obviously mm-hmm. objectively worse people in war but when you have to do horrific things is it justified and they didn't necessarily like get into that much depth but there's a little bit of that conversation that uh that i think can spawn a lot deeper conversation um never take candy from a stranger or alternative title never take sweets from a stranger sweet jesus this movie was probably one of the most difficult movies that i've seen in a very very long time it's a hammer horror film but not like a dracula monster type of hammer horror it is so grounded in reality and it like i don't want to say that i liked the movie because the um the plot of it is so unsettling that i was just unnerved and angry the entire time but it did it so well it's um it is about a rich old dude in a small community who is a pedophile and he um molests two young girls and the father of one of those girls is new in town and so he's like we won't stand for this and like tries to take the old dude to court and the old dude's son who is the the guy who's effectively like running the business and the business is essentially everything in town uh like he's standing up for his father and he's like oh well you know kids are just being kids are are you really sure that she didn't just blah 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 and like the parents of the other little girl like they're they're denying that anything even happened because he works in one of the companies where uh that the guy owns and and like then when they go to court it's just everything about this movie feels everything about this movie feels like it was made last year or you know a month ago and they didn't show anything explicit and and it wasn't okay the uh molesting of the little girls is definitely like definitely terrible no bones about it that is a horrible 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 thing they never explicitly show anything but what they do show is the way that the town reacts and the way that the town is protecting this pedophile because he is in power and it's it it was so difficult to watch because again not not because they showed little girls getting assaulted but because they showed a person saying well you know and how can you really trust a little girl you know he 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 wasn't doing anything are, are you really sure that it's just like i it's no. difficult because uh the a story of common people uh throwing themselves all over each other to protect the rich and keep them comfortable uh hits a little too close to home yep it's yeah. Uh, it's pretty fascinating how often we uh, we can be like, oh well, I mean, I know that this person did does like just innumerable horrible things, but at least they did this one thing. You know, at least the economy's doing okay. <laughs> he, what about that economy? You know, he might be a rapist, but you know, at least he got another rapist onto the Supreme Court. So there's that. <clears throat> um, so yeah, never take sweets from a stranger or never take candy from a stranger, uh, depending on which title you see it. 
it is it it's almost too powerful and um i like i i recommend it to some because of the cinematic quality but it's one of those types of movies that if you've got kids it it's way too hard of a watch if you care about mm. other people it is a difficult watch <laughs> you care about other people yeah on a much more lighthearted note on a much more lighthearted note pink panther uh is is fun and uh peter sellers is just a comedic genius and i absolutely love him uh dr strange love is another piece of just oh man dr strange love is satirical my it's so good it's it's my favorite kubrick movie like i i love dr strange love uh fucking uh Shit, I'm forgetting his name. Dude that played uh, Patton, Georgie Scott. Georgie Scott in Doctor Strange Love is one of my favorite things ever because of just how seriously he plays the most ridiculous things. Like Doctor uh, Strange Love plays more like a Coen oh, Brothers film, and it, <laughs> it's so much better than I ever possibly could have imagined it. Um, a couple more Hammer Horror films: Dracula's Risen from the Grave, um, Golden Swallow, which is a Chang Che film, and we had covered some of his films um, last year when we did our Kung Fu Brewery. Um, the Five Deadly Venoms and Men from the Monastery are both two of his films, and I loved them. But Golden Swallow it might be one of his best, and it's one of his earliest, and it is. I, I don't I just don't even know where to begin. It is one of the best kung fu movies I have ever seen. It feels like a it feels almost like a sixties version of uh Takashi Mike's uh Blade of the Immortal. It is it's just beautiful and I love it. Uh we already talked a little bit about Easy Rider. Um There's a few other Hammer Horror films that I watched that were good and definitely uh lots of fun things to talk about, but nowhere nearly as impactful as Never take candy from a stranger. Um, cool Hand Luke. Can't get through the 60s without at least mentioning my boy here can eat Man, 50 eggs. I tried to watch Cool Hand Luke. I thought that I had it recorded off of TCM, and I went to watch it, and apparently I just somehow added it, but it did never actually come on, so it wasn't recorded. I was so disappointed because I was 100% going to watch Cool Hand Luke, but I did I not. was a little worried that you were about to say that Cool Hand Luke was boring, and... No, I've never seen it. I, it was one of those, like, I must watch this movie yes, for the 60s must. episode that I just, again, had access to and then did not. It is it is a tale of, um, of once again, the law enforcement system not necessarily being... Um, good and about people who maybe you know are, are a little depraved on account of their deprived not deserving the kind of punishment that they are necessarily then inflicted upon and god the what kicks everything off and what happens at the end th- those two things sh- like they shouldn't have led to each other you know would you, Paul, would you say that it was due to a failure to communicate? It was due to a... Um, That's the only thing I know about Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> it, it was due to, to cops being bad to the chain gang and... Uh, the 
the crime that Paul Newman committed did not deserve the eventual outcome at the end of the movie. But I, I, again, another movie that hit me a lot harder than I was expecting it to because of how relevant it is to some of the things going on today. And it's a great tale of, you know, life's going to get you down, but you're going to get right back up. Uh, Dr. No, which was the first James Bond film, the first official James Bond film. There was uh, Casino Royale before, but uh, the first yeah. Sean Connery. Dr. No is also. Yes. Oh, sorry. You had paused. It's my favorite uh, Sean Connery Bond movie, which I think is a controversial opinion. It's, I mean, it's, it's the one that sets everything in motion. So it's, uh, it's hard to not love it. Here's my, I love Dr. No a lot. My only like issue with it. Movies, but, uh, I, I have one issue with Dr. No. There's no Q. I like, and, I like, well, I don't, yeah, I guess that's true. I like Dr. No, though, just because it is like a very straightforward, it's almost kind of a noir movie, oh, uh, more so than is, any of the other James Bond movies. It's hands down like one sunny, of the, yeah, it's, it's hands down one of the best Bond films, if not the best Bond film. Um, but yeah, it's, it's lacking all of the like gadgetry and it doesn't have Q and I, don't know. I think that's what I like about it. I, I'm, a, I'm a much, I, my favorite James Bond movies are like, I love the Daniel Craig movies because they're a bit more grounded and serious and the wackier James, I love the wackier James Bond movies to a certain extent. Like Goldfinger is, I think probably the uh, quintessential James Bond movie. That's where they really like nailed the formula. But um, I don't know. I like the more kind of grounded. They they have their place. It's kind of like Batman movies, movies, which we're going to get to eventually. Uh, and oh, then, did we talk about, Oh man, we got Batman 66. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't watch that one things. this time, but you know, I some, didn't days, either, but some days you just can't Batman. get rid of a bomb. <laughs> I, I love that movie. It's, it, it's one of the best Batman movies. And, and then just two final movies that I, I did rewatch and, for me, you can't talk about films from the 60s without at least mentioning Night of the Living Dead and Psycho. Two of oh, the yeah. best movies ever made. Night of the Living Dead is still just... God, it's still so good. And it it it, it had a black man slapping a white woman. And it had a black man as the hero. And, you know, like interviews with George Romero said that he wasn't necessarily trying to, uh, to make a... Um, a social commentary he was more of just like you know um uh what's his name um dwayne what's it what god i'm too tired what's the dwayne, actor's name is it williams that doesn't sound right no it doesn't sound right either we're, we're good at movies we're also just very tired yeah it is literally 1 30 in the morning right now um not a living day i'm trying to look it up but i'm spelling i spelled my if there Night after, um, Dwayne Jones. Dwayne Jones, yes, Dwayne Jones. Uh, George Romero, you know, in in various interviews and commentaries, uh, has said that like he wasn't necessarily setting out to make a social commentary with that. It's just uh, Dwayne Jones was just the best actor, and so he just hired him. Um, and while I believe that, I feel like that level of uh, racial and social commentary just it it took this movie to the next level and um yeah it's it's a solid film and psycho is practically perfect i just i what can we say about psycho 
when it's this late and <laughs> we've already been talking for a while other than the fact that it's great go watch it it's perfect it's fantastic yeah you just remind yeah. me too i watched in the heat of the night which is a really good movie uh sydney poitier man is uh that guy was a true movie star and uh he also it, it reminded me because there's a scene in that movie where he slaps a white man who uh the, the white man slaps him uh, and he slaps him right back like slaps no him right hesitation. Back, and it is one of the most satisfying slaps in movie history it is so good and the face that he makes when he does it is just like so like it's the kind of thing that makes you just want to stand up and cheer it's incredible yep. uh, in the heat of the night is really good it's one of those like i watched it and uh it was the first time where it felt like i was getting into the modern era like just the way that that movie is shot has a very kind of gritty quality to it. Like, I guess it's because it's probably the first movie in this series, in this decade series that I watched that was in color, but had film grain, you know, like all those Technicolor movies are so shiny and pretty. And this one was a color movie that was really grimy and gritty. And, um, and it had like a lot more of the handheld kind of style. It's, it's actually, it's shot by Haskell Wexler, who um, is the director of medium cool which I have to, I have to at least briefly talk about medium cool, but at some point before the end of this episode, because it is, it is basically the sixties in movie form. I think that it is the movie that in my mind best encapsulates. It is the perfect time capsule of the sixties because it is this really interesting, uh, mashup of fiction and documentary. Um, but anyway, uh, in the heat of the night is a really good movie that, it's kind of weird because it won the best picture Oscar in 1967, even though I, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, it probably wasn't the best movie of 1967, but it was, it was the movie that won because it is directly tackling, you know, issues of, of, uh, of racism in the United States at that time. I mean, it won an Oscar for best picture like three days after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Um, which is very fascinating and it does feel like there's an element of the Academy trying to do the thing that they often do where it's like, we want to award the important movie, right. maybe not necessarily the best movie. Cause this is the same year that we had like the graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. And um, I think guess who's coming to dinner was also that year with Sidney Poitier, which I haven't seen, but anyway, it's still a fantastic movie, a great police pr- procedural and Sidney Poitier is I got to watch more movies that he's been in. So that made me realize, uh, looking back through the list of ones that I watched, it didn't feel like I watched many movies that were, um, like present day. Like I watched a lot of movies that were older, whether it be Western or, um, you know, like, like a classic monster kind of thing, or they were futuristic on some level. And some of that was probably just the nature of the movies that I picked because I, tend to go more towards the sci-fi and horror and stuff. Um, but like looking through the list, there weren't many modern ones like West side story, but it's a musical. So that didn't feel real, you know, like there weren't, many, yeah, yeah, there weren't many movies that I watched that felt like they were like, like just a real movie. Even some of the ones that were taking place in the present day, like uh, night of the living dead, it's zombies. So like it, it doesn't feel like a real setting. It doesn't feel like something that could actually be happening. Um, and then again, there were a couple that I watched, but not, not many. And 
I wonder how much of that. Um, I wonder how much of that was more of like when you get to the seventies, maybe start getting into more of that, like gritty realism. Um, Easy Rider was probably one of the few yeah. that that actually felt real, I guess. Um, yeah. And and I was as I was looking back through when thinking about like, huh, I didn't watch that many modern movies. Two things that I realized: one, an entire theme that we didn't even didn't even touch on um, was the space race. You know, this is post atomic oh, age, yeah, yeah. but pre walking on the moon. And so there's a lot of the what will happen next. And uh, and, and I like looking at the sci-fi movies, especially going from the 50s to the 60s, because the 50s, there's a lot of um, like giant monsters coming to us. There's a lot of alien invasions. There's a lot of and again, you know, some of that ties into just the fear of the other invading us. But in the 60s, a lot of the space movies are what's out there. You know, it's not what's going to come to us, but what's actually going to happen if we get to space? We're we're sending rockets up there, but what's out there, you know? And and so, like, movies like 2001, um, you know, that happens with just the, are we ever going to make it to the moon? Are we ever going to walk on the moon? Are we ever going to live on the moon? So there's some of those speculations. Are we ever going to turn into giant space babies? Are we ever going to turn into giant space babies? But then there's also Planet of the Apes, which again is the what's uh, out there. And so that. I've never seen the original Planet of the Apes, and I desperately wanted to watch it. This the, I was so excited to watch, and I just could not. The racial commentary uh, is so heavy-handed, which is ironic because I was reading uh, reading up some stuff about it, where like it wasn't necessarily intentional with the first one follow-up movies. There was a bit more intention with, um, with like how it portrayed racism, but like it is just so, so blatantly, it's so blatantly immediately relevant to what we are today, where uh, the, the apes on the planet of the apes are they they live their society based off of what a few apes in charge uh, say the religion dictates we are supposed to do. And as a result, they think that humans are like the inferior species and that no human could ever learn to talk and like that they can't ever do anything. And uh, when Charlton Heston arrives, they just want to kill him because they don't want any evidence that could get in the way of the religious beliefs, the dogmatic beliefs that they have guiding the um, structure of their entire society. And it's just like, Oh, Hey, fundamentalist Christians, how you doing? That's <laughs> it. It again felt so, so relevant to where we are currently. And it's, it's a good movie. Again, it's a bit heavy handed, but it's also one of those things where because it's so heavy handed that when you watch it, because, you know, like, oh, how could they be saying this about Charlton Heston? Like, oh, how, how could they ever not think that he, he was Moses? The, then if you're like, OK, cool, like all of the things that you're saying about, like, can't they just see that they're mistreating humans? Like, just a- apply that mm-hmm. to people of other races like oh that's that's different because uh, 
And yeah, I don't yeah, know. Like it, I almost feel like it needs to be that heavy handed to to just be like, see that right there. That is how ridiculous you sound when you say crap like "all lives matter." So, um, yeah, uh, yeah. it's a great movie. All right, mm. we've talked for a very long time. This episode is probably pushing two and a half hours. Yeah, I want to keep talking about more movies, but yeah. I think we've both hit our uh, wall in terms of being conscious. So. Yep. We should wrap this up. Um, Eric, where do you want people to find you? Listen, Nathan. I am listening. I didn't talk about medium cool. That's okay. I want to stop. <laughs> talk about medium cool because medium cool is the greatest thing that has ever happened. Okay. Oh, it sounds kind of medium to me. Um, it sounds, sounds kind of lukewarm. I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to give you a brief, a brief synopsis. I have to, I have to get this out of my system because I was, I took so many notes on this movie because <laughs> I was blown away by its relevance. So medium cool is a movie that is about, um, Robert Forster who plays, uh, have you seen the movie nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal parts of it? Not finished. He, it yet. Basically he, he plays a cameraman for a news right. station and he goes out and shoots all these different stories. It starts off with them shooting like a, car accident before police or medics or anything get there. And then they just kind of leave. Um, basically, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. Um, but basically, um, it is a fictional movie, but there are elements of it, of documentary in it, which I think is really interesting. Like, um, so it's made in 1969 filmed in 1968. Um, and the end of the movie actually has them shooting footage at the Democratic National Convention um, that really took place in 1968, and there were riots that happened in the DNC, at the DNC. Um, and they shot, like, during these actual riots, and they put the actors in a real-life situation and tried to frame a fictional story around it. Um, so, like, you get scenes of people actually rioting. Like, there is one moment in the movie that's pretty extraordinary where the police throw tear gas at the cameraman and the cameraman like legitimately reacts to it. And he speaks to the director of the movie Haskell Wexler. And he says, look out Haskell is real. Um, and so like the way that it blends its fictional story with real life, I think is just super fascinating. Um, it also has this really interesting kind of fractured narrative where it cuts out all the bullshit and it kind of just skips around to the relevant things. Like they're, parts of the movie where they're interviewing um, there's this cab driver who is a black man who is turning in $10,000 that he found in the back of his cab. And the police are questioning him like, where did you find this money? Where did you get it? And like acting like he stole it despite the fact that he is turning it in. And, you know, he tries to do a news story on it and this man and his family like get really upset. And it's like, are you, do you actually think of us as people or are we just, he talks about it like Robert Forster's character talks about it as a human interest story. And it's like, Oh, is are humans interested in this because they think we're humans or because they, they see us as like specimens in a zoo. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, really actually is like directly addressing real life race issues and actually giving you the perspective of, uh, of the people that it actually affects, like you get an actual black perspective on it, which I think is just, especially for the 1960s is so rare. Um, it is a movie that is like fiercely political. Like there's a, there's a part of the movie that, um, 
there's kind of like a montage of stuff that's going on, and there's a song that's playing in the background. And uh, hold on a second, I have to like it's very critical of the police. Like you get scenes where it shows the National Guard who are doing training simulations of like what they would do during a riot, and you have National Guardsmen dressed up as rioters pretending to be angry and saying like ignorant horse shit and laughing about it. And they're like affixing barbed wire to the front of their Jeeps. And then you later see those Jeeps in the actual riots. Um, for, oh, in, in the, in one of the songs though, it's really funny. Like it's uh, the lyric is I will love everyone. I will love the police as they kick the shit out of me in the street. So it's kind of like uh, it's like a satirical hippie kind of song. Um, that's, very heavily criticizing the police and the way that they're treating citizens of the United States, exercising their first amendment rights to peacefully protest. And then yeah. they're literally getting the shit out of them in the movie. It's one of the most intense things I've ever seen. I think in the movie at the end, because you know, it's re- like the danger is real. Um, and Robert Forster's fantastic in it. Vera Bloom is, is in the movie um, as a mom. Who's <laughs> Robert Forster is fantastic. Vera Bloom is in the movie. (laughs) Anyway, I'm kind of just rambling at this point, but I just want to mention it because I'm fascinated by it. And I think it really encapsulates a moment. Like it is a perfect time capsule of 2020. Something that happened of, of 2020. Yeah. I mean of 1969 and like the parallels to 2020 are just astounding. There's a, there's also a part where he, uh, you know, he interviews Peter Boyle, uh, who plays like a person who's owning, who owns a gun store and he's talking about, you know, how scared people are and why they need a gun. He interviews this rich white woman who's talking about her vacation in the Bahamas or something. And they initially ask her about like who she wants to vote for. She's like, Oh, let's not get into politics. You know, that's, I'm a rich person. Politics don't matter to me. These things don't affect my life. Basically right. is what it's getting. At. I don't know. It's just, Extraordinary. It's an extraordinary movie. I it sounds fascinating. It. And I think it's a movie that I'm 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 sad that I didn't watch it because when you told me about it, I was like, "Ooh, yeah, I need to watch that one," and then I forgot. So yeah, yeah, I, I need to watch that one. It's really good. I think you have to you have to go into it with an open mind though, because I did. It is. It does not have a point A to point B to point C plot, which I'm pulling from Roger Ebert's review. He talks about how. Uh, the movie skips B to get from A to C, which when you watch the movie, it makes a lot of sense because I mean, like, it so fe- does 2001, a space odyssey. So, yeah, I mean, kind of like, it feels like you're missing huge chunks of the story because it's like, I want to get to the parts of this story that are relevant to things that are actually happening to people in real life that are actually relevant to 2001 skips like 4 million years in the plot. So, you know, <laughs> that's very true. And that, and that one incredible jump cut. <laughs> like, uh, but yeah, I think that uh, should definitely be, be seen by more people be talked about a lot more medium. Cool. I, I am adding it to my list as we speak. Yeah. It's on, it's, it's not streaming anywhere. I like how you, Nathan is just sitting here <laughs> hands in the air as if he's adding something to his list, but he's not really asshole. <laughs> Sorry, I, mean, I, I have I have the text that you sent me, so it's in there I somewhere. Know. It's on YouTube, which I don't normally recommend, but uh, the, I'm pretty sure the only other way to watch it is if you buy the Criterion Blu-ray, which 
I really want to do, but you know, those Blu-rays are like fifty bucks, forty or fifty dollars, and I'm broke. Of, a... I I think that Barnes and Noble has a Criterion sale coming up. I think. Oh, do they really? Because is it like so. one of the fifty percent off sales? Yeah. Ooh, I might buy this movie because I, I, I heard watch. that it was. I heard that it was coming up. Don't know when. All right. I want it to be uh, Blu-ray quality and not YouTube quality. I am running out of words and consciousness. Eric, where do you want people to find you? (laughs) Um, You can find me on the Twitters at the Chimerican. That is T-H-E-C-H-I-M-E-R-I-C-A-N. I'm pretty sure I spelled that correctly. Who knows? Um, You can find me on Instagram at Chimerican Reviews, or you can find me on Letterboxd at Eric J-A-Y. And you can find me uh, slash the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and on Letterboxd at Video Monster Pod, uh, or you can follow my personal Letterboxd at The Gargoyle. Uh, and if you enjoyed this episode and want to keep coming back for more of our thoughts and reviews and analyses, just subscribe wherever you get your podcasts Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Feels awkward to keep saying podcast so many times in a row but uh yeah wherever you listen to your podcast just go there and do a search for video monsters like subscribe leave some feedback um you know nice things be 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 nice see nice words uh <laughs> we're nice people <laughs> generally um yeah if if you enjoyed this episode keep coming back and we are going to keep doing our decades episodes until we get to uh the modern era and we've only got six episodes left we're halfway through our our uh decades we got know, 70s 80s 90s 2000s 20 you know what i'm looking forward to 2020s yeah i'm looking forward to after the 80s because i think at that point we're pretty much just like instead of doing full decade episodes we're just kind of like picking out movies to cut to focus on i mean we are we are still going to try to do a decades episode but yes our intention for our countdown to halloween Mm. is to do 90s horror movies during september and then the early audies during october so that'll be fun because that's typically like about it once we get there well because then like the specific episodes that we do will lead into that bigger conversation we won't have yeah. as much pressure to be like oh but i want to cover everything eh, exactly yeah. it'll, it'll be less uh I'm, I'm still gonna feel that way no matter but uh i mean that's true but yeah uh we're gonna keep going through and covering a decade roughly a month and uh we also have planned for the month of july a focus on some joel schumacher movies for the month of july it doesn't, i don't know which one it doesn't work as well as i don't know if it's worse uh when i say it or worse when i write it but either way it, i think it's <laughs> i think it's worse when you write it because the first time you sent it to me, i was like jolie what do you mean jolie? <laughs> it's hard to type it like to type it out at like with the to make it clear that it's jolie yes we are <laughs> We're going to be doing some episodes for some Joel Schumacher movies. And uh, first up is going to be Lost Boys. And I'm super excited to talk about that one because it is a great movie. It's absolutely amazing. It's it's a very, very good movie. It is. We're (laughs) going to have words because it is a it's great. Uh, Yeah. So keep coming back for the month of July. And uh yeah.
I think that's it. I'm tired, y'all. I need to get some sleep. That's been it for this episode of the Gar. Not God bless. <laughs> I'm that tired. I'm so tired. I've been doing so well at not saying the old name of the podcast, but uh, yeah, <laughs> my brain's shutting down. That's it for the Gar. That's it for this episode of Video Monsters. I'm Nathan. And I am Eric. And remember, kids, um, just because the civil rights movement was in the 60s doesn't mean that racism is solved. There's still a whole lot of work to be done. Systemic racism is still a thing. And uh, also remember that we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Wear your damn masks. It's to protect others from you. Yep. Um, Yeah. I mean, sure, it's also to protect you, but if you're not wearing a mask, you obviously don't care about you, but care about other people. I, I know sometimes that's difficult, but, you know, people that you love are also in that other people category. So wear your masks to avoid people unless absolutely necessary. Stop doing things like going to summer camps and large sporting events and just just stop the longer that you do this like this is why we can't have nice things this is why we we finally get a halloween on a saturday and we're probably not going to be able to do anything about it and um yeah it breaks my heart yep because three months of people not wearing masks and not taking it seriously means that we are still smack dab in the middle of wave one because like that, that the wave isn't dying down. It's just shifting. This isn't a, this isn't a second wave. This is, yeah. we're still, yeah, we are still in wave one, but that wave one is shifting further to the South and it's, <sighs> Don't be racist. Wear your mask. Exhausting. Yes. And um, watch oh, watch go. movies because movies are fun and sometimes can be a very, very necessary respite. And um, that's all I got. Yeah, I think I think that that's all that I've got. Um, oh, also, um, go watch Hamilton on Disney Plus. Yes, <laughs> it is. It is the actual greatest thing that has ever happened. So, well, that's not true. It is great, that is not, but that is not that is not hyperbole. So, we're we're not going to get into this. But here's yeah, the we we're not going to. Here's the thirty second. Uh, like Hamilton isn't being portrayed realistically. No shit. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's it is a piece of art. Which is yeah, like it's not getting all of the facts exactly right. I I'm positive that it's Aaron, not trying to. Well, yeah, like I'm positive that Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton weren't having rap battles with each other. So like, yeah, <laughs> that, of, that part is historically accurate. Of course, there. Well, Thomas Jefferson had the rap battle, but still, they they're like, of course, there's going to be some historical inaccuracies. Some things might be right. Um, some things maybe not so much and stop looking at a piece of art as a, this is like 
like the fact as if they were there it's like no they it's more like a historical like they, they are using historical figures to tell a very important story which is in part based off of things that happened and in part taking some very artistic liberties mm-hmm. to to basically, focus on the point not the person it's basically a reimagining of Amadeus but with hip hop and um, American history. Exactly. And uh, I I was reading something online the other day about, I I forget who I was reading, but some guy was saying how like when he was first exposed to some movie he saw when he was younger and like was so fascinated by it that he went to the library to learn everything he could about it. And then he realized, Oh wait, like what I saw in the movie wasn't real. It's like doy. Uh, but because what he saw in the movie captivated his interest, he then went to the library to learn about it. Exactly, so yeah. hopefully same thing about Hamilton. Like if, if you are basing your entire knowledge of uh, American history on what you see in a Broadway hip hop, um, m- maybe try reading a book. <laughs> It's kind of like basing your entire um, idea of what the Wild West was like by watching John Ford movies. Well, no, that's <laughs> accurate, though. Um, but, but yeah, like if if you watch Hamilton, you're like, huh, that's fascinating. I wonder how much of that is true. Go to the library and read and actually learn more about it. And you're going to be disappointed because there are there are a lot of historical inaccuracies. But again, I don't, who, who cares? It's an amazing musical. And great Lin Manuel Miranda is just just a lyrical genius. He's so awesome. And Hamilton is just I I can't stop thinking about it. I'm gonna watch it again this weekend. I don't care that it's three hours. Watching it, I'm showing it to my kids this weekend, and uh, and love every second of it. When when you rewatch it, pay attention to uh, to his use of like rhyming schemes in terms of Aaron Burr is very like he's very stilted. It's very like A A B B A A B B like it's a a very very basic rhyming structure. Mm-hmm. But then with Alexander Hamilton, you get a lot of like changing the rhyme mid-sentence or, you know, like multiple mm-hmm. rhymes within it. It is a much more uh like dialectical complex uh thing it that he really does. Is, like but like that's my mind that's on purpose the the way in which they are performing their hip-hop tells you a lot about the characters that they are portraying and it's uh it's it is so brilliant like it's it's very 2016 to be like hyping up hamilton but i never i never listened to any i never listened to any of the music beforehand because i wanted to see it and i never saw the play and then so watching it this time i was just like holy shit i get it yeah it's it's Uh, great uh, you might say that it was worth waiting for. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, all right. I'm gonna wait should. for it. Whatever. I'm probably getting the getting the lyrics mixed up because I only watched it the one time. But well, it's you know it's it's not your fault that you you just it's not your fault that you never saw it. You were just never in the room where it happened. So you know. <laughs> but I was absolutely satisfied by what I saw. <laughs> I'm helpless too. Alright. 
through its charms. I'm we, sorry, that's not good. We, we, should, stop. we should stop before you just start breaking out into song because we cannot afford those copyrights. All right. Um, yeah. Well, once again, that's been it for nice. this. Stop talking. <laughs> that's been Video Monsters. Come back for more discussion on movies. Uh, be nice to other people. Be nice to yourself. Watch movies to take a break, but then get back out there and do good. Yes. Wear your mask. Why are right. you doing good? Avoid people, but like do good safely. Do not throw away your shot to take care of others. And All right, we're done. Bye. Bye. <laughs>